Cincinnati area. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of. WKRP Got kind of packing and unpacking Town to town, up and down the dial Maybe you and me were never meant to be Just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 28 of the Cultural Futures Exchange. This one is WKRP in Cincinnati, as you've no doubt uh, discerned from our opening uh, theme song play of that. The other thing you heard there was one of the famous commercials uh, parodies. Well, it's not really a parody in the show, but uh, one of the famous commercials, uh, commercial for Red Wigglers, the uh, Cadillac of Worms, which we might talk about a little bit more uh, as we get onto it. So I'm Jeff, and that is Slip. That's right. And uh, Slip has some new uh, headphones today, so he uh, will be hearing everything really well. Uh, This is the uh, Cultural Futures Exchange, as I mentioned. This is where we, uh, you know, examine different pieces of cultural ephemera like TV, sometimes movies, music, other things, uh, dive into the context and the time that they came out, what happened since our take on the future valuation of the items in terms of going long, going short, staying neutral, Uh, that sort of thing. And uh, it's not that complicated and it'll make more sense if you're new to the show as we go along here, you'll figure it out. So WKRP, Slip, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, personal history and behind the scenes of your uh, experience with the show here? Right. Yeah. This is one for me that I've been kind of reticent and kind of scared to do just because it is by far the most critically acclaimed show we've done so far. So it's one of these things where, you know, and it it was a big deal to me as a kid, which I'll go into in a minute, but it was, it was one of these episodes where I knew there's, you know, for listeners, there are definitely people who are really into this show. So to do it justice and to, you know, kind of cover it and hit all the, the, the beats and stuff and its influence, uh, kind of made me a little nervous because, you know, some of the stuff we've done, either people don't know very much, or they're just kind of, crap like happy days you know i think what's happening was interesting but it's kind of like an under the radar i think for a lot of people whereas this show it's like you go on youtube you can find all kinds of you know uh 
clips from people and you know people still talk about this show now it's a popular as, as a, show yeah it's very popular very groundbreaking for its time and in a lot of ways so i was a little nervous covering it but i think i think we've really been a pretty thorough on this one and i think you know it probably will be a long episode um on the long side but uh to go back to it you know and i hadn't really gone back to the show in decades but as a kid this was probably up there with my favorite shows. I, I would say around this time, this and Bosom Buddies are probably my two favorite sitcoms. I think, Jeff, you're kind of in the same boat, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and Jeff will talk about this. He's definitely, you know, visited, revisited this over the years more than I have, uh, even having the DVD sets. And we're going to talk about the DVD sets a lot because, you know, this show has a unique issue, which is that it uses real music. And that is something we're going to address because that is something I think that's integral to its success. The fact that it got that right, you know, it got the music right. It got the setting right. Um, and, uh, you know, to me as a kid, it was very, it made a huge impression, you know, and this was around the time when I was starting to really get serious about music. Uh, you know, probably in the late seventies, early eighties, I was mostly into like Led Zeppelin, but this was what, the first time where I realized music was going to be a huge part of my life. Um, and I was really buying records for the first time. I would actually save my lunch money and starve so that I could buy records. Nice. And a lot of this music that WKRP played was what I was listening to, right? It was what was happening in, in at the times. And as I transitioned in the eighties and got more into newer stuff like new wave, they also played some of this stuff too, you know, stuff like the pretenders we'll talk about. Right. Yeah. So this was one as a kid, this was huge for me. And I remember watching it a little bit in syndication, but I didn't watch it enough to actually remember the changes that they had to make for syndication, which we'll talk about in the history. And we'll probably talk about in our evaluations. Um, I just remember being obsessed with the character of Johnny fever. I just thought he was such an amazing cool guy and such a realistic seeming portrayal of something like this. You know, I thought Howard Hessman was amazing. And then just all the other characters, you know, um, which we'll get into after we get into our personal histories and kind of set the zeitgeist for the show. We'll actually talk about the show and what, what its premise was and all the major characters. Cause this is a very character and cast driven show. Um, we talked about almost every 70s show we talk about the cast is kind of the highlight there. And I think this is no exception. So I just remember being obsessed with the little details of the show, kind of spotting things in the background, you know, the posters, et cetera. I really remember being obsessed with Johnny's Black Death t-shirt. Yeah, the malt liquor shirt. And when we went to college, we went to college with this woman named Erica, who was, she actually became sort of known after she was in a band called Lost Goat for years. And she's in another band. I forget their name, but they're kind of a, a early heavy metal, like new wave of British heavy metal style band, this amazing singer named Erica. And she, um, wore that, she had that shirt. Yeah. I remember seeing her wear that shirt around and I just thought, man, this is like the coolest chick ever. Um, you can and then, find it online by the way. I mean, Oh yeah. I'm not surprised. Places, I'm not yeah. surprised, you know, but just a little detail like that black death shirt was such a, you know, an icon. And, uh, there's so many, uh, major, parts of the show that just stay with you, even though I hadn't watched it in years, I was just still stuck on this show, you know, in my mind when I, when I, you know, and unlike, you know, we talked about um, Fantasy Island, how, yeah, I remembered the beginning and ending bookend parts of the show, the kind of framing device, but I don't really remember the plots. This one, I remember tons of the plots. Obviously, The Elephant in the Room is Turkey's Away, one of the most critically acclaimed sitcom episodes of all time. And we'll, of course, be going into that one. Yeah. Uh, but there's a bunch of other episodes I remembered and revisiting this, I even saw some things I didn't remember as well. But 
it was it was fun to revisit and it was kind of had a big impact revisiting and just even just getting a hold of the right material to watch this um because online you're not going to find the right material for the most part some of the some of the other uh, i think seasons two through four you can find bits and pieces on youtube but season one you you can only find it in one place and it's not the right it's not the right stuff which we'll get into i don't want to over you know kind of over talk about that now during my eval but it did have an effect now i want to tell a story that i didn't tell during our am gold show so we're going to be referring to the am gold show a lot here because obviously this show's about radio and we just did a show uh very much about radio um that had to do more with the songs but we also talked about you know how radio was changing during this time and this show really does hit on that you know it's really smart about that and we'll talk about that how it actually addresses some of the very changes in radio that we were talking about although i will say the weirdest thing about KRP um, is that it's an AM station, which is very strange given the times and given the format they actually had. But we'll talk about that more during the zeitgeist, et cetera. So, but one thing I should mention too is I kind of had these, you know, after college, me and Jeff, you know, we we moved together to, I went to Japan and studied English. Jeff was still going to school. And then, and then we ended up living together for a short time in San Francisco. He was going to work at biotech. I was going to get some kind of job and I was looking for English teaching jobs, et cetera. But while I was doing that, I actually, um, I think this might've been after you left, or I'm not sure if it was when you were there, but, um, I kind of had this idea me and my cousin were collecting goofy records and novelty records and stuff and weird old thrift shop records that were made us laugh. And I kind of had this idea of starting my own radio show and learning how to do radio and seeing if I could take a crack at radio. And I ended up going to this Columbia school of broad, taking the bus up to Santa Rosa from San Francisco and going to this kind of uh, Columbia school of broadcasting, not affiliated with CBS um, you know, itself, which is ironically the channel that aired this show originally. Um, but you know, I, I thought, well, maybe I could be a DJ, you know, maybe I could learn this and that could be my job. Cause I really didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. So I go to this class and this guy, Rich Reinder, and he talked like <laughs> that, just like the DJ, you know, yeah. and he just, he just interviewed me and stuff. And I did these kind of little tests they give you like, oh, we're going to see how your radio voice is. And of course, no matter how good you are, and I wasn't good, you know, I didn't have the natural DJ voice, no matter how good you were, I'm sure it was going to fail so that you needed their schooling. Of course. And and the whole schooling thing was like, and I even went to a, a couple of radio stations. Is it, by, um, by the way, is this is where they taught you to say diamond? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to yeah. get to that. I'm going to give <laughs> okay. you a couple of words. I'm going to spell some words and you're going to have to All say right. them correctly because of course i failed right. this test right, okay. but what's even funnier is they gave me like a diagnostic test like almost like a little a test on reading comprehension and all these things and it was like he's like you scored a 99th percentile on our test and this test was so fucking dumb so this is one of the questions on the test what mythical creature has a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow a chimera b uh griffin c leprechaun that's uh, the caliber of question. So let's see. See, leprechaun. Yeah. Oh, dude, you're a genius. Yeah. You got in the 99th percentile of oh, our wow. really difficult test. Yeah. It was like when I I was getting up when I was in high school, I, a bunch of Navy recruiters and Air Force and stuff were trying to get me because I got pretty good grades and they were like trying to recruit me and shit to join the military. And I actually entertained it because I didn't even, you know, n- think about what I was going to do. I was so lost and I was kind of like, should I go to college? Should I do this? And I could pay for college and all this. So I 
did their tests. And I always scored really high because the tests were just fucking dumb. You know, they yeah. were just really low rent tests. I mean, nothing like the SATs, you know, much harder. The SATs were much harder. These tests were just like really just basic skills, like alphabet alphabetization and stuff, yeah. like clerical skills that was just, you know, I was in AP classes and shit. You know, we right. were both kind of smarter kids. And, you know, it's like it was really dumb. But anyway, so I went to this. So he had me read some copy, you know, kind of a, a diamond commercial. Right. So Jeff yeah. mentioned diamond. So I'm going to give you a couple of words. One of these is, um, and I had to read a newscast too. So these were two, they kind of put me up with a mic and headphones and, and set me up. And then I had to, I had to read and then he wouldn't analyze what I did wrong and what I did right and give me my potential. And uh, so he, he gave me, uh, he kind of, when I read the copy, I read these words wrong. So, so the first one is J E W E L R Y. How would you pronounce that? Jewelry. Yeah. Jewelry. So I said jewelry. Yeah. So jewelry. So, so far, Jeff, you, you know, yeah. I don't think you need the radio school. You're already set up. All right. Uh, next word. D E T A I L S. Details. No details. <laughs> Remember like details at 11. So it's details. He's all, it's not a military detail. This guy. Yeah. And he had like fucking all these books. He had like Howard Stern books and shit. You know, he was trying to like give the vibe of like, this is the pros and it, but to be honest, and he had some guy in a booth, they had this little booth there where some guy was, you know, a student there and he was like DJing their station, like the advanced students. And this guy was of course trained by Rich Reinder, the great DJ. And he sounded just like, so like, yeah, we got this coming up, blah, blah, blah. It was like a shortwave station. It wasn't like a, you know, a real station, but anyway, so that was my brief flirtation. And then we went to, um, my, uh, friend, uh, I mean, my cousins was going to, uh, San Francisco state. And we would, me and Jeff would go hang out with him and his roommate Jason sometimes because they were just like within walking distance of where we live. And, um, Jason was a DJ during the summer on this country station in Ukiah, which is where my cousin lived called KUKI. And he totally had the voice. And he was just like, yeah, we got, you know, Kenny Chesney or whoever it was, you know, coming up here, you know, Rita McIntyre or whatever, um, whatever her name is. I forget her name. Yeah. That's her name. That's just funny. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's like, and he would do that, but it was funny because I remember all the music was on these things called carts. They were like these cartridges. There was no CDs, no records in the station at all. And he would just put these carts in, and um yeah oh yeah tim mcgraw that was the big the the song uh don't don't uh what was it don't take the girl you know take take anyone in the world don't take the girl it was the worst song i'd ever heard in my fucking life yeah. you know just like modern 90s country it was absolutely terrible so i remember when we were we went and recorded a demo tape me and my cousin of like playing like you know like uh Telly Savalas records and like celebrity records and stuff. <laughs> but, but that's kind of like something I flirted with briefly, but I realized I had no talent for it. And I realized there was also no fucking money in it, that's um, sure. which we'll, which we'll talk about um, a little bit more. I think we alluded to that on the AM thing, but that's, I just wanted to throw that in. I thought I could have put that on the AM gold and I didn't. So I, I would throw that in now as just part of my radio kind of history with this world. Anyway, so that's my personal history up to now. I don't really have anything else yeah oh, so, other than other than i do want to thank 
this podcast that's out there and we'll link to it in the show notes. And Jeff has a different opinion of this podcast, but I really yeah. liked it. WKRP cast. Cause it is it, the podcast is hilarious. It's this married couple and the guy is a total DJ and he's got yeah, that total smarmy sure. DJ voice. But I will say they helped us a lot with the research for this because I found they did such incredible research on their opening episode, which goes into the history of the show and some of the back details that they had things that Wikipedia didn't even have. And they had a bunch of stuff that they had co collated online. So I think this podcast was invaluable for us doing the research and Jeff discovered it. And it was a really good discovery because, you know, even though the podcast has its kind of issues, um, just like I'm sure ours does for people, et cetera, what? you know, the personalities. <laughs> yeah. Well, not everyone could be as great as CFX. Right. But, yeah. but anyway, so WKRP cast, and we'll definitely link to it in the, in, in the Instagram. Anyway, that's me done. So go for it. Yeah. So I, the show was really an important show for me. Same as you, as you mentioned, I watched it um, in the original broadcast at various points. I don't know if I watched it religiously, um, but I definitely remember watching it when it was on. And, and of course, in syndication, um, it was my first exposure to a lot of the music that they played on that show that I wasn't necessarily hearing on local radio, and, and we'll get into that in a second, because um, the local radio that Slip and I heard was very different, potentially, than other places in the country, just given where we, where we grew up. Um, but it was really, you know, even as a kid, I understood that, that what they were playing and sort of the vibe of the artists that they were, you know, promoting really uh, were cool. These were cool artists. These are people I'd never heard of. I had seen posters um, in various local record stores and things like that, but I saw on the show things that I had never heard of or, or seen before or never been exposed to. And that was very uh, almost intoxicating to me. Like, I, I just remember like, oh, what's that? Oh, my God. Um, you, you know, there was like a Clash poster and I had heard of the Clash, but I think at that point I never really even listened to the Clash. It was a couple of years after that um, where I started hearing them. So it would, and and there's very questionable things they had on, on posters too. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about how it was a little broader uh, than they probably would be in real life. Um, but anyway, the mood of it was very compelling to me, and it just became an important part of, you know, my development as a as a little junior music nerd. So, um, you know, one of the things about it, though, from a radio point of view, is it took place, of course, in Cincinnati which at the time, and, and still today, obviously, is in um, southern Ohio, right on the border of Kentucky. Um, in fact, the airport I've been to quite a few times uh, is in Kentucky, technically. But the, it's a small city, relatively speaking, and it was a small market, and that played an important part in the, um, in the plot of the show, which we'll, which we'll get into. But I, I do want to say something important here, which is that... Slip and I, and we talked about this on the AM radio uh, show, uh, AM radio, uh, AM 70s AM Gold. I'll get that out a lot. And we've been talking about our exposure to radio in LA when we were growing up, especially the stations, primarily KMET and KLOS, which were the big rock stations in LA. We talked about K-Rock, which is a little more of a new wave station that Slip probably listened to more than I did. I had a lot of disdain for, actually, because uh, it played like the Cure and shit that I absolutely fucking hated at the time. Um, but it, it was okay. It had some, you know, had some other things going for it. It certainly played missing persons in Berlin and those, and those sort of things a lot, but the radio stations of LA were like the second biggest market in the country after New York, presumably. 
And right. so the talent and the uh, production values and all that stuff that we heard growing up, very, very different than you would have heard in the late 70s in like Cincinnati, Ohio, or, you know, Champaign, Illinois, or Ann Arbor, Michigan, or, you know, what have you, right? And so I think it's interesting when they have all these, like, uh, we'll talk about Les Nesman and his cow uh, pig reports. And, you know, like it was a cow town, it was a pig town, it was a farm town. Like, that didn't really resonate with me. I thought it was funny and quaint, but to many people who watched the show, I was like, oh yeah, we got those too. You know, we have those reports and we have the agriculture and weather reports for the farmers and it's part of radio. Yeah. And so like Slip and I never got any of that. We thought it was, I actually thought it was a goof until I got older and realized, I'm like, no, that's probably actually happening in a rural place like Northern Kentucky and Southern um, Ohio. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about um, more about the zeitgeist. So there's that zeitgeist. The other thing that I wanted to, to mention, too, in the late 70s, and then we'll talk about some of the characters and DJs and things like that that Slip will, will go into, is around the, the uh, early 70s, radio started becoming a big business and it started getting standardized in terms of ratings. And Arbitron, which um, we'll talk about over the course of the show and, and the ratings book, became an industry standard. And it was really the way that it... Uh, the radio industry started becoming a big business. Um, instead of just trying to get this raw numbers of people, you started having the ratings broken down by different demographics. Uh, people started wanting to, you know, get, you know, male listeners between, you know, 16 and 25 or female listeners over 30. And I mean, this is mirroring what was happening in TV and other media too, but it had a profound impact on radio. And the biggest, most, uh, you know, desirable audiences were increasingly going to be the young male audiences um, and rock music was a big appeal there. And so the idea that a station like WKRP um, would go from easy listening, as we'll talk about, into a rock station was not an arbitrary thing. It was something that was very likely to happen because the demographic of rock listeners in the 70s was becoming more and more um, desirable. Right. So anyway, right. I'll turn it over to you to talk about um, some other related things here. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the era of, you know, radio transitioning from AM to FM and transitioning to these very uh, kind of controlled formats. Um, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the show. But I mean, you're getting stuff like Clear Channel, which actually became iHeartRadio now. Right. So people know about that. And that was really bad in the early 2000s where Clara Channel was just buying up all these stations and controlling the formats. And uh, but they started in 72 and they were already starting to be we were getting these big uh, radio monoliths, like these big corporations buying up right. stations. And it, originally the um, the FCC was regulating this. You know, they were kind of saying this is kind of a trust thing. And but then, in, of course, in the 90s, with the deregulation of, of communications, you know, we had these big you know, Verizon and AT&T and stuff like that. And, and then we also had Clear Channel able to just buy up all the stations and, and kind of making radio very niche and very not very, as broad as it was in the 60s. You know, in the 60s, you would have stations play Cream right next to The Temptations. You know, you would have all these different formats thrown together. WKRP maintains a little bit of this, and it's kind of a holdout on, on you know, in, in the plot on the show. The show very much goes into this. There's even an episode, which I'll talk about, called The Consultant, that specifically addresses this corporatization of radio. But you also had DJs kind of becoming a somewhat famous. You know, obviously you had Casey Kasem, who's kind of an outlier. He's 
did the top 40. So he was syndicated all across the country very early on. I mean, he was doing this in the early 70s. Um, but then you had stuff like Rick Dees, who became a, you know, he had a pop singer, a number one hit, the disco duck. And then you had uh, Boss, the rise of Boss Radio, which we didn't really get to in our AM uh, show, but Boss Radio was this way of radio DJs kind of having the same energy as the music. So they were playing rock and roll and they were fast talking and stuff like that. And the show that the station that Jeff said he listened to a lot as a kid, KHJ was the one who was kind of famous for creating this. Yeah. And one of the DJs um, most famous for this was a guy named the real Don Steele. And he was also known for having a cameo as an announcer in death race 2000. So they, <laughs> these DJs would, yeah, great, great classic, which we may cover. Um, also uh, touches on our uh, Ronnie James Dio a little bit because Wendy Dio was in there. Um, but, um, any rate, there was another DJ, Frankie Crocker, who became famous, uh, Jim Ladd, you know, was a DJ that we listened to in Southern California. He was so well known that Roger Waters ended up hiring him to be part of his concept album, Radio Chaos. We'll hear so, from him in a little while too. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, at any rate, uh, you know, you have this radio becoming a big thing, these celebrity DJs and, um, you know, and obviously, there was uh, people like Fraser Smith, KLOS, who was kind of a morning zoo kind of guy. And then you had yeah. Shadow Stevens, who actually was a really big DJ who had commercials for this local stereo store in L.A. called the Federated Group. And he became <laughs> Fred Rated, if you remember Fred and Fred Rated. totally do, yeah. Yeah, so Shadow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at any rate, that was kind of the zeitgeist. Now, the other zeitgeist is, is, of course, late 70s TV. And Mary Tyler Moore Productions was the company that created the show. And Mary Tyler Moore was this television magnate you know, who, who created tons of sitcoms and ran tons of sitcoms, most notably Mary Tyler Moore show herself, you know, which was a really major um, show and actually was quite similar to the show in some ways, but it was about a television station instead of radio. And then you had soap was another show and Howard Hessman had been in that show. So, so, you know, it was WKRP straddles the line between being a really cutting edge kind of sat satiric show and being a kind of mundane late 70s sitcom. I think it has moments of both. And we'll talk about that. And then, of course, you had Jiggly TV. And that is represented here in the in the character of Jennifer Marlowe, played by Lonnie Anderson, although we might argue she subverts that role a little bit. We can talk about that and how she's kind of a Jiggly character because she's kind of blonde, super blonde and wearing these kind of tight dresses and things. But she also kind of isn't the typical stereotypical blonde. They kind of subvert that a little bit, but we can argue that and get into that in the evals. So let's jump into the kind of what the show's about, right? So the show is about um, an AM radio station called WKRP. And the basic premise is this is a failing station. Uh, it's 16th out of 16 um, in the Cincinnati market. And uh, it's run by, it's managed by a guy named Arthur Carlson, who's also referred to as the big guy, but the station's owner is his domineering mother, Mama Carlson. And their format is beautiful, quote unquote, beautiful music, which is kind of like Muzak, easy listening. Um, it's a, it's stuff like Lawrence Welk, yeah. right? And Mormon Tabernacle Choir and stuff like that. And um, this station is catering to a very elderly audience. So there's a lot of jokes about the uh, commercials for the station, like funeral homes and stuff like that. Um, and they basically have gone through a series of program directors because Carlson always fires them. And 
the show is introduced in a really strong pilot uh, where we meet all the characters and it's all pretty much set up perfectly. I mean, all the characters in the show um, kind of are introduced to you in their uh, fully realized forms in this pilot. And the main character is a guy named Andy Travis, who has just been hired by Mr. Carlson. And he's a program director who has been run, who has been working out of kind of these smaller markets like uh, Amarillo, Texas, and, and uh, new, uh, you know, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and stuff like that. And he, um, you know, wants to change the format to rock and roll. Like one of the very uh, first scenes in the show is him unraveling a kiss poster and putting it on the wall, you know, and kind of, uh, uh, kind of shocking the other, another character named uh, who will be known as Johnny fever uh, to, you know, kind of shocking him because this is like not expected. And of course, mama Carlson is completely against this at first, this change in format. He also brings along with him a DJ. He hires from new Orleans uh, Gordon Sims, who goes by the moniker Venus Flytrap, right? Yeah. Um, but what's weird about the show is, is it actually is a multi-format station, right? So you have Johnny playing a lot of kind of hard rock, classic rock. He even plays a lot of oldies like Ray Charles and stuff like that, which we'll get into in a little bit. And then you have Venus Flytrap playing this kind of laid back R&B and R&B and, play, you know, kind of having a, a silky kind of nighttime show. Uh, he has a gong and chimes and stuff. And then you have like Les Nessman, who's like a newsman who does news broadcasts. And then you have like a Sunday preacher who, who play, who's, who's on Sunday. So it's like a weird um, combination of things that would probably never really exist in the real world. But that's kind of the, the premise of the show. Well, I, you mentioned that, you know, the difference between an AM kind of rock station and an FM rock station. I want to play a clip of Hugh Wilson, who's the showrunner and creator of the show, talking about why um, this is an AM station. So here's Hugh. And I know this is going to be, you know, uh, splitting hairs a little bit, but because I'm an FM guy and we always viewed ourselves as Viva La Revolution and we were the, you know, ones pushing against the... AM stereotype in top 40. I was kind of surprised, especially with that depth of subject matter, that you set it at an AM station rather than an FM. And tell me why you did that. I thought that it, the station was so square at the beginning, it had to be AM. <laughs> mm. yeah. I mean, Howard said in the pilot, um, well, they're going to change the the music format. Maybe we're going all Hawaiian. Right. <laughs> it, it was uh, that bad a shape. So I thought I thought it couldn't be an FM station. Would be that, too hip already. That was so middle class, middle part of the country, right? White bread, out of touch. Right. So, by the way, that was Jim Ladd, the DJ that we were talking about before, interviewing the WKRP podcast. Oh, wow for the uh, Paley honors kind of, kind of thing. So that's, Oh yeah. One of those round tables. Yeah, exactly. So that was Hugh Wilson talking about, well, why WKRP had to be an AM station, but to your point, this was a, you know, a melange of all sorts of different things that probably couldn't or wouldn't really exist um, outside of maybe a college radio station or something like that. Right. Yeah, totally. All right. So let's talk about, uh, you mentioned some of the characters, so let's kind of go through, um, a quick sketch of, of some of the other characters on the show, just to give everybody um, a refresher if you haven't seen it or an introduction if you, this is new. 
But you mentioned um, Andy Travis as being kind of the, the hotshot program director hired to change the station's format on Rolling the Kiss poster. Um, the show premise and the, the theme song, at least, was from uh, this character's perspective, the uh, moving up and down the dial to different stations to kind of uh, make stations successful, being the hotshot to come in, fix everything up, and then move on to the next station, presumably in a better market um there so andy travis is played by an actor named gary sandy um and he was was sort of famous for his look as much as anything he kind of had that 70s feathered uh haircut wore very 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 tight jeans which were often uh, <laughs> yeah, made totally. fun of my, I, on the show and he kind of had like a little bit of a country thing going on as well the actor is actually from dayton ohio which is you know across the state north but um not super far away, I guess, geographically, certainly an Ohio guy. And there's a lot of writers and people who were associated either with radio or with Ohio or both. Um, so that was interesting and probably added um, to the, the realism. Uh, you mentioned that uh, he, he had a lot of Western uh, shirts, right? And he has a Southern accent too. Like yeah. he, it's implied that he's kind of from the South. He's kind of got a Southern accent and he kind of has this kind of, I don't know, very calm kind of demeanor. He's definitely the straight man of the show, if there is one, even though there are some comedic things that he engages in. Um, And he definitely presents an air of competence that a lot of the other characters and and participants don't on the show. And in fact, he, yeah, like uh, I think you had mentioned he has like a good track record of turning around failing stations. And he actually does turn around WKRP in the end. But by the second season, they had only jumped up two spots and he was really, really bummed. Like they get this Arbitron book in the episode, Baby, If You've Ever Wondered. And he's disappointed because he only moved the station up two slots. But of course, everyone else is overjoyed and they right. treat it as like a, a celebration. Um, he was nicknamed by, uh, you know, the production team as Gary Tyler Moore because that was an MTM production show. And he kind of fills the same role as Mary Tyler Moore on her show. She's surrounded by a bunch of crazy like Ted Knight and all these crazy kooky characters. And she's kind of the straight woman of the show. And that's similar to the role that uh, Andy Travis slash Gary Sandy plays. And he was based on a real program. You're going to find a lot of these people are based on real people that Hugh Wilson ran into. And we'll go into how that that happened in in the history of the production of the show but he was based on this guy captain mikey harrington this famous programmer okay yep i do you want to say anything else about andy travis no well okay i want to say one other thing and that's if they had made a movie of wkrp 20 years ago just think fucking matthew mcconaughey he would have been absolutely perfect for this fucking part um although yeah he would have had to get grow his hair out more uh, yeah. the, the hair is the hair is another feature of Andy that is often commented on his his kind of poofy 70s parted in the middle hair. Yeah, they kind of have a little bit of a resemblance to one another, too. Um, OK, so Arthur Carlson played by uh, you mentioned the big guy, uh, Gordon Jump. Um, he is the uh, general manager of the station who has a job from nepotism, essentially. Right. His mother owns the station. Um, he's kind of a bumbling, indecisive uh guy he's more interested in like his fishing magazines and toys and you know not really much of a radio executive um he has a weird dichotomy because he's sort of incompetent and bumbling but then at other times he's just like completely in control and 
you know, has all this experience and this moral compass and all these things, which I'll get into in my evaluation, I find to be a little ridiculous. Um, but he is uh, hides in his office, really doesn't want to talk to anyone, doesn't really want any responsibilities. And one of the main jobs of Jennifer Marlowe, played by Lonnie Anderson, which we'll get to in a minute, is to keep him um, away from uh, or hidden from or uh, keep those people away from Carlson, right, where he's not going to be interfered with in his pursuit of, uh, you know, basically goofing off and looking at fishing cattle, fishing catalogs and doing whatever it is that that he he does there. So you wanted to add some stuff about. Yeah, just uh, some fun facts. So originally this was supposed to be played by Tony Randall because. Uh, who hates uh, kids, by the way. Yeah, who hates know. kids, right? We mentioned that before. Yeah. But uh, the to- there was the Tony Randall show and Hugh Wilson had been had gotten his start in TV by partially by producing and writing for that show. But we're really glad that Tony Randall wasn't chosen because I can't imagine it. He, you know, is Tony Randall's great sitcom actor and everything, but he would not have worked. I think Gordon Jump, you know, just his his personality, just he's kind of bumbling. And I think he nails this uh, role. And he was based on a real life um, manager, station manager, WQXI manager, Jerry Bloom, uh, who actually was the guy who did the turkey drop promo in real life, which we'll talk about in a bit when we talk about turkeys away. Um, he would follow this with a really notorious role, Jeff. I don't know if you remember this, where he played a, a pedophile yeah. in different strokes, which I'm sure we'll get to different strokes, but that is one of the craziest fucking episodes of any sitcom. And his performance is, is amazing in that he should have got an award, uh, even though it's such a dark and fucked up character. And so, so the opposite of, of big guy, uh, Arthur Carlson, um, he would, the opposite of Gordon jump in real life, which everyone says he's like the, nicest dude ever yeah he's a mormon too he was like a lifetime mormon um and yeah he was really nice and he um when he auditioned he actually got a phone call a message before he even got home from the audition that he got the part because he was so much like this guy jerry bloom that hugh wilson was like this is the guy and uh he would follow up that all that with becoming the symbol for the maytag company the maytag washer repairman and ironically after he died, the guy who took that over was Richard Sanders, who who would be, you know, who plays Les Nessman, who we'll get to. Yeah. All right. So why don't you take us into the probably the elephant in the room here? The yeah, probably the most impactful character on the show. Dr. Johnny Fever, uh, played by Howard Hessman, who uh, his real character's name is John Caravella. He had other uh, pseudonyms in the show for various gigs, including Heavy Early and Riptide who is like a, a disco DJ and stuff like that. But he's the veteran disc jockey who um, is fired in LA. Uh, and we'll get to the reasons why shortly. Um, but he was the, the big star of the uh, show in, in a lot of ways. And he was supposed to be the main featured DJ of the station. Again, having been on in LA, which was a big deal for the reasons we talked about. Um, he uh Essentially is a little bit of a, a burnout uh, character, wears dark glasses, has that Black Death malt liquor t-shirt, um, you know, kind of appears stoned and hungover a lot, has always seen drinking coffee and sleeping at various places in the station, including on the air uh, at various points in time. And there's a, one famous scene where um, he sort of very seems like he's very stoned out uh, in, in a very famous music scene, which I will cover later on. Um, and he gets into trouble in various ways uh, on the air for saying things and doing things that we'll get to in some of the plots. 
Um, he is uh, adopts the name uh, Johnny Fever um, from Johnny Sunshine, I think, or he was heavy early. It's hard to tell at which point he was what, but the in the pilot episode when they do the uh, the change of format, he uh, on the spot extemporaneously adopts the name of Johnny Fever and that character um, when they do the format change. So um, anyway, he is just kind of one of these uh, characters who goes from station to station and, you know, does whatever he needs to and has been around the radio scene for a long time and, and is just sort of one of those characters, which I you mentioned in the opening uh, parts in your personal history, you really found compelling. I did too. I thought he was really cool and um, just his demeanor and it just made me laugh because I understood the archetype that he was supposed to be, even though I didn't really have a lot of direct exposure to that type at that time. It was still very interesting. So you had some other things you wanted to say about uh, the character. Yeah. First of all, I think the theme song actually applies to Andy, but I think it could also apply to Johnny as well as Venus flytrap because it's kind of the nature of radio to be switching stations. And obviously Johnny is a character as we'll get into when we talk about our evals and we talk about the pilot who has been through all of the markets of radio. You know, he, he had a heyday in the sixties and he had to, he got, he got booted from his job, which we'll talk about why, because it's really funny and it's part of the evals. Um, but he basically was in an A market, like a top, top tier market, you know, and then he's, he's kind of gone downhill until he's ended up at the bottom of the barrel, which we're right. led to believe is WKRP, this easy listening station and playing music that has nothing to do with his taste as we'll get into. Right. So yeah. he, I think the, the, um, I think the theme song could apply to a lot of people working in radio because you're switching markets. It's kind of like working in television too, where you'll get, you know, uh, maybe, maybe a, a, a news anchor on a local station and they try to work their way up to being in a big market. Right. So they move with where the job is. And I think the rate, that's the nature of radio. And that's one of the cool things about the theme song is it kind of tells the story of more than one character. Now, one character that it could not apply to is the next character we're going to talk about, uh, which is Les Nesman played by Richard Sanders. Yep, he's the bow-tied reporter who is kind of a wussy uh, dude, you know, wears uh, you know, glasses, a bow-tie, does the hog reports, uh, which we uh, talked about earlier. Very conservative politically. He's always worried about pinkos and communists and things like that. Um, there's a, He had some running gags, some sight gags on the show, including that um, he always had some bandage on some part of his body, which um, was a real in the first uh pilot, the actor got hit by a light and had a Band-Aid and just decided every episode he's going to have a different, uh, you know, bandage on a different part of the uh, of his body. He also is famous for um, wanting an office and not being able to get one. So he puts tape on the floor and makes people knock on his imaginary door and open it to go in and out of his imaginary office, um, which he takes very, very seriously, um, very patriotic and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, really is sort of the fish out of water with all these cool cat DJs all around um, and younger people um, who he's very uncomfortable with. Um, and, and he kind of has this, you know, begrudging friendship in, in a sense with uh, with Herb, who he doesn't really trust, but it considers a friend anyway. And we'll get into some of that. So um, anyway, a uh, very funny guy on the show. And he has some, uh, some uh, you know, fuck ups on the show that we'll talk about that are played to great comic effect. Uh, you know, I mean, the character does, obviously, and, and we'll talk about some of them. So anything else you wanted to say about uh, Les? Yeah, I think I think Richard Sanders is one of the greatest uh, 
kind of side characters of all time. I think, I think he's, uh, I mean, Les Nessman and I think Richard Sanders performance is absolutely incredible. Um, I think some of the funny, absolute funniest moments of the show come from him. And he was actually a really sharp guy and he actually wrote or co-wrote five episodes throughout the series. And you'll find that with a, 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 a couple of the people like that have participated in the show to a certain degree. And yeah, his whole thing with the tape around the office, you know, his, he had this, he wanted, he thought a news, uh, the head of the news department deserved his own office. But of course they have this kind of group office they call the bullpen, uh, where they all have little desks like her Bailey quarters, who we'll talk about and, and, and Nessman. And so he doesn't really have his own office. So he puts tape around the, uh, to simulate walls and people have to pretend to knock on the door and all this. It's, it's really hilarious. And he's just, um, you know, obviously he, one of his signature things in the show is he gets pronunciations wrong. He gets words wrong. He tries to be reach out to Venus flytrap and he ends up being kind of inadvertently racist because he's just so fucked up. He's always touting his awards, the silver sow and the, uh, you know, these various awards, Buckeye, the Buckeye News, Hawk. Buckeye News, News Hawk, Hawk, right? Yeah. Right. Another Ohio reference. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, he's, he's a great character, but he's a fixture at this station. Right. And it, we're, we're at, there's actually uh, some establishing one thing that the show does really well, which I'm going to talk about a lot is that there's backstories to all these characters. They actually go into the backstory, like, you know, Ralph mouth and Potsy, you never really learn that much about them on happy days. You learn more about the Fonz and Richie a little bit more, but it never really, even though the show ran for so much longer than this, they never really did much deep dive into the characters where I think the show, has a lot more character development than that show um or even what's happening and what's happening tried to do it again it was not on for very long so maybe right. they would have done it better but i think this show really really has backstories and character development that a lot of sitcoms don't i think it's one of the strengths okay next we're going to talk about jennifer marlowe played by lonnie anderson yeah so she is the secretary at the station um her main job is really taking care of Mr. Carlson and deflecting any business uh, calls or uh, meetings or just basically saying that he's dead, he's not around, to, to leave him alone. She's the highest paid uh, member of the uh, staff, which is sort of strange, and everybody thinks it's strange, but at, the, at another point, they sort of realize that she sort of keeps the station running to, to some extent, and, and really Carlson helps Carlson function. Um, in, in his job, she's obviously attractive and uses her physical appearance um, to, to various, um, you know, advantages. We'll get into talking about what those advantages are and how she uses it and, and maybe how she has so much money beyond her higher paid salary at the station um, and her, her dating life and, and so forth and so on. We'll get into. But anyway, she really, uh, you know, played with the character that, um, you know, a lot of people in the show uh, we're constantly, uh, you know, hitting on in the herb, especially, which we'll talk about in a second. But other characters that, you know, side characters or guest characters, obviously, were um, very uh, attracted to to her um, and her looks and so forth. So, um, uh, by the way, for a secretary, she doesn't type. She, um, she won't get coffee, won't get coffee and basically won't really do much of anything other than just take care of Mr. Carlson, which maybe is very astute because he's the one who's uh, paying her to basically protect him from any uh, work or responsibility. So anyway, uh, anything else you wanted to say about her? Yeah. So, and the other thing is she's extremely smart, right? That's yeah. the other thing that they kind of make a play uh, of. They kind of play up that she is not the typical dumb blonde, even though she plays 
the dumb blonde during the episode, the consultant to try to kind of mess with the consultant and have him report back to, you know, Mama Carlson hires a consultant to improve the station. And they end up all being the opposite of themselves to kind of so that when he goes back to her, he has no credibility. And so she plays a dumb blonde. And obviously everyone knows she's not. And what's interesting is her relationship with Mr. Carlson is almost like, you know, it's just very much a friendship. There's nothing hinted at impropriety or anything like that. Right. Um, and there is even Carlson's wife isn't jealous of of her at all. You know, she realizes how important Jennifer is to the station and all this stuff. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, what's interesting about Lonnie Anderson is she was originally brunette. She kept getting cast as villains. Um, and as soon as she dyed her hair blonde, everything kind of happened for her. I mean, she looks crazy to me. Like, I think someone looked like that now you'd be like are they from a weird like russian you know village <laughs> like because because no one has hair like that anymore i mean her hair is just unfucking real looking you yeah. know it's crazy um but we also should also mention that a common thing that happens uh that's a crux of the show is the next character herb tarlick is constantly hitting on her and trying yeah. to go out with her and uh that perform that definitely uh is a big part of the humor of the show um, you know, his different kind of approaches to her, et cetera. And there's also a kind of running gag where Johnny is always trying to sneak up on her and kind of yeah. grab her, but it's like kind of innocent, I guess. It doesn't really, it's you don't really lechy, get the feeling that it's like lechy, yeah. even yeah. though everyone's kind of lusting after her. She's almost treated as like kind of this goddess who's above everybody. Everyone's like kind of like kind of basking in her glow. It's such a weird, weird original thing. And we could talk about that because I think her character there's probably good and bad sides to it. Um, it yeah. falls, I think it falls into kind of sexist stuff sometimes, but sometimes it subverts it. And we could argue in our evals to what extent that is. Anyway, yeah. so let's move on to Herb Tarlick, played by Frank Bonner. Yeah, who is like the, the tasteless, boorish uh, sales guy um, at WKRP, played to the hilt. Um, he is very famous on the show for wearing these, you know, crazy, uh, suits, uh, polyester leisure suits, which I'll talk about more in, in the evaluation, uh, section matching belts, just like crazy ass, uh, things. Everybody knows who he is from how he dresses. Um, he is struggling, I think throughout the show, moving from the sales, uh, uh, you know, clientele of the funeral homes and things like that. You mentioned when they're easy listening to rock and roll, he really doesn't, he doesn't really believe in anything other than money and he doesn't really trust Andy or the new people coming in the rock station. He thinks it's stupid. He thinks it's a threat to his existing relationships and ex his existing clients. I think he gets on board at various points in time when, you know, there's more money at stake and he sees how he can benefit uh, from it, but he's really just the sleazy sales guy played to the hilt. Um, you know, he has catchphrases like, okay, fine. And no, no problemo. And uh, he is, uh, you know, really uh exactly what you would expect from a radio sales uh uh slimy uh sort of dude he's constantly he's married he has two kids which you'll talk about uh, extensively in an episode called real families but he's constantly hitting on jennifer just like to the point where it's just like oh my god just stop you know and she puts up with him and deflects it and it's it's he's not handsy or anything like that but it's just it's to the point where it's just so ridiculous. I think it just overshadows a lot of things, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into. Um, anyway, you wanted to talk a little bit more about the character and Frank Bonner. Yeah, yeah. So 
uh, for the other thing is the character is kind of after Andy's job. You know, whenever Andy's job is threatened, he's kind of like ready to swoop in and take over as program director. Um, that's kind of a running thing that happens, especially during the early part of the show. He was actually based on a real life radio sales exec named Clark Brown, who kind of had a kooky style. But Frank Bonner was the one who came up with a lot of that look. Um, in fact, he made a point of put uh, tucking in his shirt so you could really you know, make the, he made that white belt really prominent. Um, you know, his look is outrageous, almost of the level of like Mr. Furley on Freeze company, which we mentioned in our sixth episode. Yes. Yeah. And the other funny thing is another reference I wanted to mention is he's always talking about his Chrysler Cordoba, which of course (laughs) we mentioned in the fantasy Island episode, because Ricardo Montalban had done those, uh, commercials again, another, another guy was really sharp, Frank Bonner. I mean, he's amazing in the show, by the way, and my opinion of him changed during this viewing, because I always thought I was kind of sick of that running joke with him and Jennifer. But I realized they do some things with this character and the actor is just so fucking good that I was like, I completely changed my opinion on this viewing, which I'll talk about in my eval. Um, he directed, actually directed six of the episodes, too. And he became a director after this later in life. So he's a sharp guy. All right. Speaking of another sharp guy, let's talk about Tim Reed, who played Venus Flytrap. Yep. So you mentioned his character's history of coming with Andy to WKRP from another station in New Orleans. He plays kind of the funky evening DJ with the gong and the, and the soul music and kind of the whole Sly and the Family Stone vibe that he created in the studio, kind of akin to what we were talking about um, in the Rumors episode um, a little bit. Um, he, his character uh, goes through um, a lot of, uh, you know, I think expo- exposés in the sense in terms of bringing out where and how the character of Venus came to be and who the real guy behind Venus is. The character's name is Gordon Sims. Um, and a lot of revelations about that and how he came to be and, and, and what his um, background is as a character and, and so forth and so on. Um, he was a, a U.S. Army veteran um, in, in the Vietnam War um, and there is a famous episode, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about, where it turns out that he, a couple of days from being honorably discharged, decides to walk away and desert for reasons that are revealed in the, the, the show. He's also um, a, a teacher, we find out in, in a later episode, too, uh, and teaches a kid some lessons about uh, some, some chemistry stuff and things like that. So obviously he's a bright guy plays it up a little bit, plays up the funky kind of, you know, a streetwise character um, to the hilt at times and other times really dials that back down as it serves his uh, interest. But funny character um, is buddies with Johnny Fever. Um, They get along pretty well. Um, They have a lot of mutual respect for one another and, and, you know, they play off each other for comic effect in many, many scenes, even though in reality, one guy is an early morning DJ. The other guy is is a night DJ. They've never seen each other. But they, uh, <laughs> That's wind a good up, point. they wind up hanging out a lot uh, there at the station. So you want to talk about Tim Reed and the character a little bit? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great character, too. And Tim Reed's really good in the part. He also was another guy who wrote three episodes of the show, including one I'm going to talk about a little bit called The Family Affair, which deals with racism. Um, and he also was a writer and director and producer after leaving the show. And he was on a short lived show, which I've never watched called Frank's place that was also produced, uh, co-produced with him by, um, 
Hugh Wilson. So Hugh Wilson obviously really liked working with him and respected him. And uh, yeah, we'll have more to say about Venus in our evals, but let's move on to last and certainly, I don't think least, Bailey Quarters played by Jan Smithers. Yeah, so she was the the young uh, college graduate of the station from, from journalism school, we learned. Um, she's pretty shy and unassuming and over the course of uh, the episodes becomes uh, much bolder, uh, had g- gaining confidence in various ways, becoming an on-the-air reporter, uh, you know, using her journalism uh, school uh, skills. And, you know, she wants to become, you know, a news executive, a broadcasting executive. And she is really one of the few really competent uh, people on the station who has real skills and real desire and puts in work and tries and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the actress, obviously, uh, you can see is, is an attractive woman who's really dressed down and they put big glasses on and they have very loose fitting clothes and, and things like that. that uh, you know, and it, it's sort of one of those deals that I'll talk about a little bit in my evaluation. Um, but she winds up having an on and off again, sort of relationship with Johnny Fever at some point. Um, with some other, uh, you know, people off camera and, and things like that. And she um, was, you know, I think in her readings for the character, kind of a shy person, although I am always skeptical of these stories. It's like, oh, I was so shy. I didn't, this is an actress going for audition, uh, you know, jobs. Like how shy are they acting right, actually right. be? Some of that's complete bullshit. I think there's some bullshit in this too. But anyway, the actress um, was uh, married for a while to a guy named James Brolin, you may have heard of, uh, who famously was in uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, <laughs> among all, other things. Among other things. <laughs> well, that's the most important thing he was right, in right, for, right. for certain. Um, he also went on. They were divorced at some point. They had uh, He had some kids, including uh, Josh Brolin, uh, before Jan. Um, they had a kid together, I think. They were divorced and... Um, you know, he went on to marry a, what's her name? She's a singer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Barbara Streisand would be the, the person, uh, actress too. So he's married currently still has been married to her for a very long time, Bar- Barbara Streisand, but he was married to Jan Smithers, uh, before. And you wanted to talk about how Jan was discovered, right? Yeah. So she was, uh, discovered. They were doing a shoot for uh, Newsweek magazine on like the young generation or something. And there's a famous cover of her. She's on the back of a motorcycle kind of turned around. And she was worried because she was actually ditching class uh, yeah. during that time. And she was afraid of everyone. But obviously she was like this beautiful young girl. And that's why they took a picture of her. And that's the that's the funny thing, because there's this whole thing that we'll probably go into more where it's very similar to Ginger and Marianne on Gilligan's Island, where you know, it's Bailey quarters versus Jennifer, which one are you more into whatever. Um, and, uh, cause obviously even though they're kind of playing her as the shy mousy woman, she's obviously, you know, completely beautiful too. Right. So it's, it's, it's funny, but she's also kind of where the show kind of, you know, it's interesting contrasting her with Jennifer because the show has very feminist kind of intent around Bailey quarters. You know, there's Andy is a supporter of her, right? She tries to get into the newsroom with Les. Les is pushing back. She's obviously way more intelligent than him and way more competent. And she has a couple of episodes where she tries to kind of have these stretch goals to move on to the next phase. Like she is definitely the one you could see managing the station other than Andy. She's like a picture of competence, even though she makes some mistakes along the way and her shyness is kind of played up 
too. You know, she's really good in a part. It's really an interesting character, I think. And it's a contrast with Jennifer. And I think they both kind of revolve around these women in the workplace. And they really touch on that issue here in the show, maybe more than a lot of other shows did. Um, so it's kind of interesting. With yep. that said, I think we should just jump into... Uh, oh, by the way, she was based on Hugh Wilson's wife, Charter Smith, who also, I guess, was uh, working in radio. Um, but but that's um, funny. Bailey Quarters, Charter Smith are kind of funny names. Yeah. Um, at any rate, let's go into the history of the show. So the show is, of course, we've mentioned his name many times, created by Hugh Wilson. He is a guy who originally started out in advertising in the early 70s and worked his way up in this uh, Burton Campbell agency. Uh, started as a songwriter, which is interesting because he wrote the theme song to, or at least the lyrics to the theme song of WKRP. And then he moved to be creative director. And he would use that experience in advertising to kind of come up with the idea for KRP, right? Yep. He had worked extensively with this almost notorious Atlanta station called WQXI during his advertising days. And obviously, as we mentioned, a lot of the, not all of the people who were based on real people worked at QXI, but a lot of them worked at QXI, um, including, um, you know, the 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 person that Gordon Jump was based on, right? So, um, Bloom, right? So, he had parlayed that experience, but before he did that, he got into TV um, by meeting producers, uh, Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsers, who were producers for the Bob Newhart show. They got him a job with MTM Enterprises. He wrote for Newhart, and then he also produced the Tony Randall show, and then he went to create WKRP. Now, another person who was instrumental in the creation of the show was a writer named, a producer and writer named Bill Dial who had actually worked in radio and had had a stint at WQXI. And he actually wrote five of the episodes, um, including uh, the notorious Turkeys Away, which was based on a real radio promo on WQXI, which we'll get to in the evaluations. Um, he also played a side character on the show on a couple episodes, uh, the taciturn radio engineer, Bucky Dornster. He's actually pretty funny in episode called Hold Up, where the station is held up, and then another one called Baseball, which... I said the baseball episode was really bad, but his part is funny because he's completely drunk, but also awesome at baseball. So it's kind of funny. Um, at any rate, he was um, uh, fired by Hugh Wilson. You you mentioned this. Yeah. In, I didn't know the, this story. I didn't find this out. Yeah. The, I think that the WKRP cast uh, podcast they mentioned, or there's an interview with somebody on there. I think it was an interview with Gary Sandy they had on there I was listening to where I think it was this guy. He was the guy who walked out of the Dell stereo store, right? That's right. He's, yeah, yeah. he's like moving the equipment. That's during the holdup episode. Right. Dell's and we'll like, talk I'm about that union. because there's really good music. Yeah. 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 So, so they worked together a lot. They used to drink a lot together. And apparently there was some incident on one of the seasons of the show where they got drunk and they got into some fight, like a physical fight. And he wound up throwing a shot glass at Hugh Wilson's head uh, wow. or something. It, and they fired him from the show at, at, at some point, I think. Uh, That's probably why he only wrote episodes during the first season, because I was wondering that, because yeah. he wrote a lot of the episodes, and he was instrumental in bringing that verisimilitude of real-life radio to the show that people reacted to yeah. who were in radio, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, now, obviously, I, since a mean drunk, a, I guess. So yeah, mean drunk. So obviously, since it's a radio show, uh, you know, they have to think about what they're going to center it around, the music. And... Um, Cincinnati 
was chosen probably because it's kind of a middling radio market. You know, it's kind of a second, third tier radio market. It's not the bottom, but it's, you know, a medium sized city. It's not a major market, as Jeff was right. talking about at the beginning. Um, but it also sounded good in the theme lyrics, um, which is interesting because we'll talk about how they actually tried to sit, make it very Cincinnati centered. Um, which is something I really admire about it. Um, they they didn't just make it kind of a generic, oh, it's Cincinnati, who cares? They actually brought in Cincinnati stuff to make it seem more realistic. Um, the theme song was written by uh, Hugh Wilson, the lyrics, but the music was written by Tom Wells. And Tom Wells also wrote the end theme, which I think is one of the greatest uh, themes of anything ever put on on a show, which is a really hard rocking theme that sounds like something the station would actually play, that Johnny yeah. Fever would actually play. And it's it, he uh, Tom Wells laid down these nonsense lyrics, some of which were made to stand in for a sax solo. And it's like you don't really if you listen to it, you can't really understand almost anything. It's like it starts out with like went to a bartender, maybe. And then it's just like, you know, it's just like not even. But yeah. but. But Hugh Wilson just accepted it as is. And so that's what how it ended up. That's it's really funny. funny. Now, uh, the show, um, you know, needed to license actual music. Now, CBS wanted them to just use soundalikes. They're like, well, if you want something that sounds like Beatles, we have the stock recording here that's like a fake Beatles song uh, or whatever. And, and Hugh Wilson was like, no, it's got to be real. Like if people are going to buy into this, it's got to be real music. So we've got to figure out how to do this. So one thing they did was they were going to shoot it on video because the music licensing was cheaper. Now, I don't know if that's the only reason they did that. That's primarily the reason. And MTM didn't even have video production because all of their sitcoms and shows were shot on film. And so they actually had to shoot at KTLA, which I think we've mentioned before in our in our podcast. That's one of the local stations. Channel 5 that we did. Tom Hatton. Right. Yeah. yeah, we mentioned that, right? So uh, they they ended up shooting in video so that they could get the licensing to the music. Um, the show uh, aired on uh, September 18th, 1978, and it initially did quite poorly because it was set against two of the most popular shows on television, Welcome Back, Cotter on ABC and Little House on the Prairie on NBC. So this was on CBS. Oh. But the show had poor ratings, but it got a lot of acclaim in the press and it got a claim from actual DJs who said this was the most realistic portrayal of of radio they'd ever seen. Now, there was a, a show that was like called Good Morning America or something. I forget what it was called. But I learned about it on the WKRP cast that had starred uh, Goldie Hawn in the 60s. That was about a radio station. Mm. That's the only one I think that had ever existed. And it was a complete flop. And so, um, you know, obviously it was not a subject that had been successful in the past. So the show, after eight eight uh, episodes, it was kind of put on hiatus for a brief time. But then because of all that critical acclaim and, and the DJs talking about it, they brought it back and they kind of put it next to CBS's absolute sitcom crown jewel, which was MASH, one of the most popular shows of all time. And so the show skyrocketed and went to number 22, not amazing, but still pretty solid. Um, it gathered a following and, um, eventually, so during its time though, CBS moved it around the schedule, no less than seven times. They kept trying to bring it in. Like they had this show called house calls that, uh, they wanted to promote with Wayne Rogers that I'm sure no one remembers. And so they would move WKRP away and move that show in. And they kept doing that essentially just wanting to kill it. Now the show ended up running for four years 
And it was canceled on in 1982. And by the time the show ran on um, April 12th, 1982, the final show, it actually had climbed in the ratings. It had gathered a word of mouth and had gone all the way up to number seven. But by that time, it had already been canceled. So it was done. Now, during its run, the show did get some acclaim, as I mentioned, not only critical acclaim, but it was nominated for several awards. Lonnie Anderson was nominated for um, the Golden Globes uh, for both supporting and lead actress. She was also nominated for an Emmy twice, as well as Howard Hessman was nominated for an Emmy twice. Um, And the show was nominated as Outstanding Comedy Series two times. Now, it only won one Emmy which is really weird. It was outstanding video editing for the episode Bah Humbug, which is the Christmas Carol episode, which I'll be talking about later. Um, But that's really hilarious because um, the thing is, is that, uh, give me a second here. The thing is, is that, you know, it probably wasn't a huge competitive (laughs) contest to have best video editing. Um, and then it won a Humanitas Award for writing for an episode called Venus and the Man, um, written by Hugh Wilson. So it did get some acclaim. Now, it was syndicated as well, but the problem with the syndication was they had to completely renegotiate the music licensing. And of course, since the show was kind of hot now, it had been number seven and syndication, it was bound to be popular. Uh, the music licensing people came back and said, oh yeah, you paid $3,000 for this one. Now it's going to be like $20,000 or whatever. They upped the price. So they couldn't use the music. So what they ended up doing is going to that original CBS idea and using sound alike music, which I will argue is I've seen these and it's not good. You know, it doesn't sound good. And then because, you know, we talked about how DJs in, in the AM space and even in the FM space would often do a needle drop and talk over the beginning of the song. Well, of course, Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap did this too. So what did they do? They had to remove their vocal tracks and actually overdub the whole thing with sound alike actors because yeah, they were playing the song and they had to take out the song because they couldn't get the licensing. So yeah, it was, it was a real bummer for syndication. I don't remember seeing this at all. I don't remember watching this. I may have watched it and just didn't know or caught an episode where there wasn't as much music. Um, but this did happen. Now, as far as the aftermath of these characters, uh, you know, after the show was over and they got the syndication deals going and everything, Hugh Wilson and Tim Reed went off to create Frank's Place. It only lasted like a season, um, was not successful, though people did say it was a really good show. Um, Lonnie Anderson would become more famous. She'd be in a bunch of like Burt Reynolds movies and, you know, she dated Burt Reynolds. So it was all over the tabloids. Also known as Turd Ferguson. Oh yeah. Your favorite, right? Turd Ferguson. That's another thing. You've got to, you got to drink every time Jeff mentions uh, Steely Dan or Turd Ferguson. Or Quarter Flesh. Uh, right. Or Quarter Flesh. Right. I've got mine too. So, you know, um, at any rate, uh, and then Hugh Wilson went on to direct some pretty big movies. He made the first police Academy film. And he made a little movie in the 90s called First Wives Club, which will never be covered on the show unless we get to like episode 10,000 or something. And then it still, um, it still won't at that point, by the way. Okay. And then uh, the big news is that, of course, WKRP was so popular in syndication, they decided to bring it back. 
uh, they created the new WKRP, which is a syndicated show as well. And that ran from 1991 to May 93. I could not bring myself to watch these. I tried to watch part of one and it was so bad. I couldn't. Did you watch any of these? I, I seen I had seen a couple and I didn't watch it for this just because I didn't want to get that stink in my, uh, you know, mouth and nose because it's so bad. Yeah, the show only ran for four years, but looking at this, it probably was about the right amount of time because yeah. this show, they brought it back for the 90s. And um, so this show brought back uh, Frank Bonner, right, yeah. as Herb Tarlick, Richard Sanders as Les Nessman, and Gordon Jump as Arthur Carlson. And there were guest appearances by Tim Reed, uh, you know, and Londy Anderson and Howard Hessman as their characters. And then the new cast was um, the Andy Travis role. The program director was played by an African-American actor named McKelty Williamson. And then the Jennifer role was played by none other than Tawny Katane, uh. most famous for the, the notorious White Snake videos of the late 80s, which I'm sure we'll get to at some don't, point don't in some way, shape, or form. Don't forget her star turn in Bachelor Party, too. Oh, yeah, Bachelor Party, right, right. We'll have to cover no, the one episode plot I was interested in, I couldn't find the episode online. I think all of these are easily available. Unfortunately, the originals are not, and I'll explain why in uh, my eval. But, you know, or we'll explain why shortly. Um, but the um, uh, there was one episode where a DJ gets in trouble for playing the song Cop Killer by Body Count. I thought that yeah. was kind of cool. But again, it's, the show's really not very watchable. It doesn't capture the same magic. The writing isn't as good, um, you know. Etc. So at any rate, the show, uh, now the original show was finally released on DVD in 2007. But the problem is this was released by 20th Century Fox and the DVDs are of the syndicated versions of the show. So they have the overdubbed acting and they have all the placeholder kind of stock music instead of the original music. Now, the good news is in 2014, Shout Factory got, uh, you know, who put out a lot of great stuff and kind of dig up old archival things. They basically were able to get 85% of the music back in by renegotiating the royalties. So if you're going to watch this show, this is what you have to watch. Because watching, I'll talk about it in my eval more, I'm sure we both will, but watching it without the original music, it is just not watchable. And you don't want to really hear like a fake Johnny Fever and a fake Venus flytrap, right? Yeah. So the, these are the ones to watch. They're not perfect. Um, the other thing is, of course, the syndicated episodes are edited down to 21 minutes because that was the length of time syndication syndicated episodes were. The original episodes are 25 minutes. So if you don't watch the Shout Factory DVDs, you're missing like four or five minutes of the show. We'll talk about one episode, Hoodlum Rock, where this had a pretty major effect on the actual show. Now, as far as where you can watch this on streaming, you can watch select episodes on YouTube, but I couldn't find almost any of the first season. The only episode of the first, the only episodes of the first season I found were these episodes where the track was sped up. The screen is tiny and there's a disco ball in the background to fool the <laughs> algorithms. And those are the originals with the original music, but it's unwatchable because you hear like a 78 speed Les Nessman, which yeah. kind of funny, but a 78 speed Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap doesn't work as well. Um, so those aren't great. And then the other episodes are available and scattered uh, on YouTube. The only episode, the only official streaming platform for this is iTunes. You can buy season one. I went ahead and bought it. I ended up eventually getting all of the Shop Factory DVDs from the library. So I was able to watch those in their proper form, finally. 
that's one of the reasons why it took us a while to record this episode because I needed to watch more of it because I was just so not familiar with the show after so many years. Yeah. And I tried watching stuff on YouTube, but I really needed that first season. There's some really critical, including Turkey's Away. There's some critical episodes, right? So um, the Shout Factory DVDs um, are the only really way to watch it. The iTunes season on season one on iTunes is the syndicated version with all the replacements. So you don't get the original music. And you don't get original Johnny Fever and Venus talking over the records, right? right? You have the Shop Factory set, right? I do. Yep. Yeah. So you had had that. Did you buy that right when it came out or? Um, some years ago. Yeah. I I think it's like five, six years ago. I got Yeah, you it. probably bought it right yeah. after it came out then. Yeah. Since 2014 is when it came out. Yep. Yep. So yeah, I've had Cool. It. So that's going to play into our evaluations, right? Because obviously, whether this stands the test of time is is going to necessitate being, people being able to watch it in its proper form, right? So let's jump into the evaluations. I'll start. So my general uh, kind of feelings about the show is it's pretty damn good for what it is. Um, I'll talk about the pluses and minuses um, of the show, but let's jump into the good, which I think, in my opinion, I'll just be upfront, kind of outweighs the bad, in my opinion. It was fun to revisit these. So of course, all of the 70s shows we talked about, the strength is the biggest strength is the cast and the characters. And I think this show, especially, uh, you know, a lot of the shows, it's really just the cast. Like I would say Happy Days, it's really just the cast, right? Yeah. I would say what's happening, it's a mix of cast and character. But here, the character development is so good. The character writing, so funny. And then just the actors they got to play the characters are just so good. Um, so let's start out with. Um, you know, the uh, for one thing, let's just say one of the things I like about this is this show has a history to it. The, you yeah. get to learn the history of the show. There's one episode. Um, it's a two parter that I be, think begins season three or four. I don't remember. It's called an explosive affair. And it's about a bomb threat. And a bomb has been placed in the WKRP radio tower. I'll talk a little bit more about this when I talk about use of music. But when Venus Flytrap and Johnny go to broadcast from the radio tower, they bring some records with them and they're sitting there and there's all this wreckage and, and stuff in the background. You know, it's just stuff that's been stored in the radio tower. And you see this old poster, WKRP 1954 presents Perry Coma. <laughs> and so I love that whole history, yeah. right? Because remember, it was a uh, beautiful music station. Yeah. Before it turned into rock and roll, right? I love those little touches too. It just kind of in a small little gesture gives you a whole interesting kind of colorful backstory. I, I love it when, you know, set decoration and, and subtle cues are used to good effect like that. It's it's good. Yeah, the art direction of the show is really good, right? They, yeah. The posters and stuff that appear and disappear. Sometimes the posters aren't even there in the walls. It's really weird. We'll talk more about that. I'm, not, I'm jumping the gun here. But as far as cast and characters, we got to talk about, first and foremost, Johnny Fever. He's probably most people's favorite character. Um, he's up there for me. I think I have one that kind of pushes the uh, to number one over him, and I'll talk about it in a minute. But Dr. Johnny Fever, we learn about his backstory right at the in the pilot, right? He talks about how he had been kind of up and down the dial, right? All, right. And all these different markets, he was uh, Johnny Sunshine, right? And then, of course, Andy, he's talking with Andy, and Andy remembers him. Oh, yeah, you were, you were him. That's you, you know, like this classic DJ I grew up with, whatever. And I remember you got fired for something. Yeah. Well, he gets fired for saying the word booger. <laughs> and this is just so hilarious, right? And it just kind of goes to show you the conservativeness of radio, right? So 
during this time, Andy is talking with him and Andy's like, well, I'm going to change the station format, you know, and you're going to be happy that we're going to be playing rock and roll. You're not going to be having to play um, the, you know, kind of schmaltzy stuff you're having to play. Right. And um, so he kind of, of course, Howard Hessman's like, you're going to get fired. Right. And, and Andy does get fired for like two seconds. Right. in in the show. And then of course, eventually, um, uh, Arthur Carlson stands up to his mother and says, you know, we're going to try this. And she agrees. And, you know, she's kind of charmed by Andy. Her and Andy have a weird relationship throughout yeah. the show. It's kind of a, a little suggestive. It's very strange. But anyway, he kind of charms Mrs. Carlson into letting him change the format. And when he does, Johnny Fever goes on the air. And this is what happens. So let's play the clip. <laughs> John F. Fever, and I am burning up in here. <laughs> we all in critical condition, babies. But you can tell me where it hurts, because I got the healing prescription here from the big KRP musical medicine cabinet. Now, I am talking about your 50,000-watt intensive care unit, babies. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say, give it to me straight, doctor. I can take it. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, you can hear how fucking funny that is. Right. And and I will say that Howard Hessman, speaking of the great cast, improvised pretty much all of that. And um, we didn't mention this, but he had actually had a, quite a background in improvisation. He used to be part of this kind of hippie comedy troupe called The Committee, kind of like The Groundlings or yeah. Second City. Um, and I remember watching my wife Francisco, yeah. in San Francisco. My wife got DVDs of the Dick Cavett show. Uh, you know, just she got him from the library and we watched it. And I was amazed at how good the show is, by the way. It's one of the best talk shows of all time because he interviews like Muhammad Ali and John Lennon and George Harrison and Yoko and all these people. And he uh, had the committee on, you know, they opened one of the shows. And I remember seeing Howard Hessman going, holy shit, that's fucking Johnny Fever. You know, I didn't yeah. know any of anything about this. He also had some kind of countercultural uh, credentials himself. You know, he actually was uh with Janis Joplin, you know, Hessman, he's got a little piece about... of piece of her heart. Yeah. yeah. Hessman. Yeah. So it kind of Hessman and Johnny Fever are very unified. And originally he was he was um, based on a real DJ, but he he was originally supposed to play Herb Tarlick. And he was like, I'm not being on the show unless I could be Johnny Fever. And you can hear he was meant to be this character. This is uh, probably the best casting of all time this part and he's just amazing in the show. And I love that we get this whole background of him in the pilot, you know, and it really is authentic to the way real radio works. Um, people would be fired by really stupid things like that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. So the next one of course is, you know, Venus flytrap is another great character. Jeff kind of already talked about this, but I just wanted to allude back to the whole story of Venus flytrap being a deserter and them kind of dealing with that whole shame of Vietnam. You know, it's a, it's a little clunky. Um, that episode, you know, it's, it's very overdramatic, but I think it was really cool that they took this on. Um, it also is dubious to me that he would be able to hide out, 
uh, by being a very prominent DJ, you know, just by using a pseudonym, you know, you know, cause he, the, the whole premise of the show is he doesn't want to be in this ad campaign because he doesn't want to be seen, but it's like, wait, he's a DJ in New Orleans. He's very high profile. He's very flashy. There's nothing subdued about this guy. So it seems very dubious, but at the same time, it was really cool to have his backstory. And there was more character development of him as the series went on. Um, Really good, right? Um, And then uh, I wanted to talk about this episode, the Bah Humbug episode. So I alluded to the kind of 50s of WKRP. Well, this episode is really, it's, Good and bad. I kind of mention it in my negatives, too, because it's this hackneyed device of a Christmas Carol episode where they actually have um, Gordon Jump, you know, Arthur Carlson have a dream sequence where he's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present and Christmas future. The thing is, though, is it's really done well. And um, they actually go back to the past. But the whole premise of it is really funny anyway, because they're having a Christmas party at WKRP. And Johnny brings in these brownies and everyone's like, uh, oh, a brownie. And they're like, and then Andy's like, Johnny brought those. And Venus is like, oh, he holds back, you know, so it's implied they have weed in them. So Carlson eats two of them. And that's the reason he has this dream is he's stoned. So it's like really funny that they did that. I mean, that's so subversive, right? Even though it's like this hackney Christmas Carol thing, but the ghost of Christmas past is played by Jennifer and she takes him back to the fifties. And we see a young Les Nesman get his first bow tie. Right. And we see uh, how it's just so a Christmas Carol because the the kind of uh, counterpart to Mr. Carlson, the whole premise is he doesn't want to give them bonuses because of his mother and he's worried, but you know, his earlier counterpart, the guy who ran the station earlier was so generous. Right. So he learns that or whatever. And then the ghost of Christmas future thing is funny because they kind of show some of the stuff I'll talk about in a minute, which is the reality of radio being more automated. It's just like a Herb Tarlick and a robot basically running the station in this little futuristic kind of thing. So it's really clever, even though it's kind of a cliche to have a Christmas Carol episode, they kind of put their own spin on it. So I really like that they they kind of dive back into the fifties and we see the origin story of Les Nesman, which is really cool. Now, Les Nesman is my favorite character on the show. Um, I think his moments are the absolute laugh out loud best, even though I really come around on Herb Tarlick and he's kind of pushing up there as and Johnny I've always been into, but I'll talk about Herb Tarlick in a minute. Cause I think he's in one of the very best episodes the show ever did. Um, but I remember one of my favorite things when I rewatched the pilot, I actually laughed out loud at this. So Andy is they're in Mr. Carlson's office and Andy is trying to convince him to be a rock and roll station. Right. And Carlson's like, mother won't like it, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and he's like, well, it'll really push us up in the ratings and less Nesman's and he's all Andy, but there are already so many rock stations in Cincinnati. And Andy says, well, why do you think that is less? And Les says, I always thought it was some kind of plot. (laughs) So he's always like Jeff mentioned, he's super paranoid and he's got all these pinko references. There's even one episode where there's a tornado and he has to read a broadcast about a tornado, but all he has is copy for a, an invasion of the Russians. And so he's, he's actually replacing the word Russians with tornado reading this copy. So it's really hilarious, but I wanted to play this clip of less at his very craziest um, reading some news. And now, Parker's Paradise Sweet Meat Treats, purveyors of pork-like products to the Tri-Counties, proudly present... (laughs) Russ Nussman. (laughs) On the news. 
Hello, this is Les Nessman with the 7 p.m. news. The presidential campaign heats up as Carter Kennedy Coffee Clutch concludes clash concerning Kansas Convention Caucus. But in Butte, Bush, Baker, and Brown blast bountiful big business boom. I'll be right back after these meat presages. <laughs> these meat prefages prefages yeah. um uh so yeah he he's constantly screwing up words but you see all that onomatopoeia and his uh an alliteration in this copy is just hilarious um i just love everything about this character i think he's really great in some episodes i'll be talking about him and the use of music a little bit later um now herb tarlick again was a character i was kind of short on when i started watching the show again i thought oh it's just the same old kind of lecherous guy you know the loud sales guy but they really developed this character and Frank Bonner is actually shows quite a lot of range. Now, my favorite Herb episode is called Real Families. Now, this this show was um, there had been a documentary uh, made by PBS about this family called the Louds, which was a groundbreaking show. It was kind of the first reality show. And they follow this family. Um, and it actually was kind of crazy because the family ends up getting divorced. One of the sons, Lance Loud, ends up going, you know, being gay. Um, it's really a dramatic show and it was really a groundbreaking show and this was parodied by um uh what's his name Al albert brooks right yeah. in this in the in the show called real life a movie called real life and this had come out around this time and so wkrp i think was influenced by both of these things and they created this episode called real families which was a fictitious kind of reality show where they would follow a family and they follow herb's family and they basically show up a day early to catch him off guard so so he can't kind of whitewash his existence and you know his house is all fucked up and they pretend to go to church and they of course don't go to church so they end up driving around and going to the church and it's locked and they end up having this barbecue and he's going to toss the football with his son. And then we get this scene uh, that Jeff's going to play. Toss the ball around, okay? You stand right. Stand right. Give me the, give me the doll. <laughs> All right. Now, this is the old uh, combination of uh, Bradshaw to Swan, you know, except that uh, Swan's color, of course. I mean, black. <laughs> Did you say colored? <laughs> What? Uh, you said colored at first, not black. Oh, uh, 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 I didn't mean it. No. What about prejudice, Herb? I don't have any. Oh, come on. We all do. No, not me. I mean, there's this uh, there's this guy, a black guy, a Venus flytrap's his name. He works at the radio station. I mean, he and I are just like that. I mean, we, you know, we even attended one of those uh, NAACP meetings once. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I think. Might have been some other kind of meeting. Uh, I do remember there was uh, there were a lot of black people there, you know, like an NBA game. <laughs> just just getting there. <laughs> Brilliant, right? I yeah. mean, it's so fucking yeah. hilarious that his performance is spot on. I mean, this is almost like a Saturday Night Live skit or something. Yeah. Like, it's so biting, the satire. And it's like, I also say that the woman who plays Lucille, Edie McClurg, is amazing in this episode. Like, her weird kind of... Uh, stilted delivery kind of yeah. hiding all this tension but she's showing it at the same time and then when they do the documentary at the station it's kind of like this you know this camera crew goes around and everybody repeats this can phrase herb is the greatest guy blah 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 and you can kind of see venus flinch when he mentions the uh you know the naacp meeting um or as Ferb would say, N-A-double-C-P meeting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's really great. It's really great. And I and think of course, it's... Venus is on TV on a national show, hiding out. 
Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this was after, right? He was yeah. already cleared by the military. Of course, he has a magic magic clearance. We'll talk. I think you'll talk more about that. Yeah. Um, anyway, and then, of course, the character of Bailey, uh, I really like because she's kind of developed throughout the show. She's kind of given more chances. And there's this really hackneyed episode called Daydreams where Carlson is reading a speech and each character kind of falls asleep. There's some funny moments in it, but it's one of these other episodes where they each have a fantasy, kind of something Happy Days, bull, kind of bullshit Happy Days would do, right? Um but what's funny is she has a dream where her and Johnny are in bed. So they have, they're actually in bed. They have a relationship, but their relationship is he's the first man and she's the president of the United States. So I thought that was really cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was a really cool fantasy for her to have because you kind of said, oh yeah, she's having a fantasy with Johnny, which they've alluded to so many times in this series, but the fantasy has turned around where he's just her first lady, kind of her first man. So that yeah. was really cool. Now, as far as the other strong, uh, thing about the show is not only the characters but the show is just fucking funny like the the herb thing we played was really funny and of course nothing uh is as high profile as turkeys away this is a classic episode where carlson wants to become more involved in the station so he dreams up this promo of of kind of giving away free turkeys but the way he does it is he drops them out of a plane so let's have les nesman set up the scene here uh of this episode I think I hear something now. Uh, the crowd is moving out into the parking area. And, oh yes, I can see it now. It's a, it, it's a helicopter. And it's coming this way. A helicopter? It's flying something behind it. I can't quite make it out. It's a large banner. And it says, uh, happy Thanksgiving. From W... The helicopter seems to be circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's uh, a dark object. Uh, perhaps a skydiver plummeting to the earth from only 2,000 feet into the air. Second to the third. There's no parachutes yet. Yeah, it's hilarious. And of course, they get Les Nussman to read all that. And it's just great writing and, of course, great delivery. But the most famous line in the episode, you really just have to watch this episode. It's great. Uh, but there's a really famous line. Let's just play it. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> That's how the episode ends. Yeah. They're, you know, him and Herb were attacked by the turkeys that remained alive. They're all covered in feathers. It's really worth seeing for yourself. Uh, another episode that's hilarious that uh, Hugh Wilson actually hated. Uh, you know, the, the 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 station was actually wanting him to write more kind of broad comedy. So he wrote this crazy episode called Fish Story, which has a bathroom fight between Herb dressed as the WKRP carp because it's KRP sounds for carp. Actually, the reason the reason they chose krp was because it sounded like crap right um and uh the wpig so wpig is the big station in town they're the rivalry and there's this guy dressed in this ludicrous wpig pig costume and there's this crazy fight between the two of them and it's absolutely hilarious i mean the carp costume is amazing um and this story is notable too for one of the best cold opens of a sitcom in history and jeff is going to take talk about this one 
So the drunk reflex contest uh, stuff. So <laughs> they got this idea for like, you know, drunk driving awareness sort of thing. They got this cop to come in. These are famous things where they'll start administering one drink at a time to people and measure their reflexes to say, hey, look, look how degraded your reflexes um, and attention span and all that kind of is as you continue to drink. And uh, they uh, have this on the air where this police officer is having Venus and Johnny uh, both uh, both drink. So I, I want to play a little clip of that and I'll talk about it. I propose a toast to law enforcement everywhere. <laughs> this test is to prove that even after one drink, people are not good drivers. Now, this man here... Uh, Venus! Uh, yeah. This man here was affected immediately. Uh, uh, that is normal. That's me and you swap hats. Superhuman tolerance to alcohol. Yes, it's true. It was once sort of a hobby. So Johnny Fever is not getting drunk. The more they feed him whiskey, uh, he... He's yeah, getting better. I, he's getting better, he's right? He's getting Which faster. Is, yeah. His reflexes are getting better. It's yeah, yeah, and the cop is losing his mind because it's like, this is impossible. You can't be getting faster. And it, again, it, it's very broad comedy. You kind of have to see it. An audio clip doesn't do it justice, but it, but it's still very funny. And, you know, Tim Reed's Venus flytrap is very, very drunk and just kind of a little over the top. And of course, Johnny Fever is not affected whatsoever because, as he said, uh, drinking was a bit of a hobby for him and presumably not affected by it. So anyway, there you go um, on that episode. By the way, uh, Hugh Wilson uh, wrote this, as, as uh, Slip mentioned, and said that he wasn't thrilled and even used the pseudonym uh, not to have his real name associated. With oh, wow. I didn't know that part. Yeah. Raul Plodger or some, something like oh, that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. But it's a great episode. He was wrong. Yeah, he did he a great was. job. Um, yeah. So anyway, especially that opener. Amazing. Uh, you know, my favorite episode as a kid, I'm not sure if it is now. I like a lot of the episodes now, uh, was an episode called Hoodlum Rock. This is from the first season. And this was cool because it actually had a real guy in it. You know, uh, Michael DeBar. Now, he was a very B-rate rock star. He's probably known more for being married to Pamela DeBar, you know, the author of I'm With the Band, the world-famous groupie who had sex yeah. with Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page and all the rock stars in the 70s. Um, and he had never really was never successful as a rock star. He had this band Silverhead that was kind of an also-ran glam band. He had this band Detective, which was mainly known for being one of the two or three bands on Led Zeppelin's Swan Song label. Um, and Detective is actually what you hear in this episode, but it's him and two other actors and they kind of, you know, they're, they're a notorious band called Scum of the Earth and they show up to the station and this is kind of the scene that happens. Let's play that clip. Yes. Huh? Mm. Hey, listen, Dr. Fever, this is marvelous. These guys are wonderful coats and ties, the whole... <laughs> Welcome aboard, fellas. Thank you very much, sir. Are you sure you're scum? Positive. Well, of course they are. Where is Mr. Peavy? Uh, he got out of the car. That's actually the last we saw of him, I think. Was the car moving when he got out? <laughs> yes, I, I believe it was. <laughs> uh, why would he do a thing like that? We don't know. But that's our story and we're sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, these are the guys. Yeah, there's this whole interview with Johnny where he talks about punk rock and they talk about how punk rock is passe and too commercial and they're more like scum rock or whatever, hoodlum rock. Um, and they end up 
refusing to play the concert that the station is promoting. So actually Venus and Andy and Johnny kind of threatened to beat them up basically. And they get on stage and they play this whole, like a few songs. And this was actually cut all this performance. It's actually detective playing in the background and uh, they're shooting fire extinguishers of the crowd and, you know, yelling at the crowd, you're terrible, you're stupid. It's really funny. They're really good in the, Michael DeBar is really good in the part. Actually, he became an actor. He's more successful as an actor than he probably was as a musician. Um, but it's a, it's a great episode and I really liked it as a kid. Um, so anyway. There, yeah, and there's the there is a, a poster, a big poster in, hung in the lobby of WKRP. It said, Welcome Scum. And there's a background story about that that's sort of amusing that Hugh Wilson uh, uh, told here. So I'm just going to play a little clip of that. Cool. <coughs> oh, he called for a banner in the lobby that said, Welcome Scum. <laughs> and so the writers got that and... Oh, dear God, this is so, we got in so much trouble for this. Uh, CBS affiliates were having, having their big, they were coming to our studio. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Great. Oh, man, they were bringing him in on these buses and whining and dining him in some famous restaurant was courting the thing. They looked up at, and they were our offices, and maybe Gunselman. I want to hit. Anyhow, here's a banner and said, Welcome, scum. And the next thing I knew, two pages from CBS came running into my office. I was right, very close to having a heart attack. They had their little, you must take this down immediately. And we did. We did because we obeyed the rules. So there you go. Messing around with CBS affiliates, uh, hanging up big signs as welcome scum which is probably pretty funny uh, if you were there. So anyway. It's true. It's true. So yeah, that so those are some really funny episodes, but then there were some serious episodes, like very special episodes. And the no, most notorious of these, most famous is of course the concert. Now this was based on the Who's concert. Uh, it, uh, it's, a, it, it's a very uh, famous incident um, in, uh, that happened in Cincinnati on December 3rd, 1979, uh, basically this concert was a general admission show and fans stampeded and several uh, kids died. Um, and what's interesting is the station is talking about this concert and they barely mention the band's name. You know, they mention, I think Venus mentions it later in the show once and Carlson is gonna go and everything. And they and they do this whole show around the the concert and everybody says they had fun. And then of course it ends on a dark note because they mentioned that so many kids had died and they sort of make it a public service announcement about banning general admission shows, you know, and, and, and they do put something on the end of the credits that basically say, you know, a bunch of cities have, have banned them and including Cincinnati. Um, so it was kind of a special episode, but what's cool about it is that it actually happened in Cincinnati and they're a station in Cincinnati. So of course it's really cool that they actually did it. So it not only speaks to the uh, Cincinnati-ness of the show, really trying to root it in reality, but also dealing with this, uh, this thing that actually happened, you know, that was a tragedy. And, you know, uh, as to how effective, I mean, it's not a funny, there are some funny things in the beginning, but it's not really a funny episode. So, yeah, I think you're going to talk more about this one, right? 
Yeah, I mean, here's a clip of Tim Reed talking about the episode and how it came uh, to be. The writing that I look back on now with such fond memories because it was a radical show. I mean, the, the, the kind of episodes that would come out of Hugh's mind and the rest of the writers. Uh, I, I remember the day we were having a party at Hugh's house on the weekend, and he came up with the idea to do a show on the Who concert, the tragedy of the Who concert. We were all standing around with a little too much to drink, and uh, Hugh said to one of the writers, you know, we're a radio station in Cincinnati, and this happened there. We would have to do something about that. Mm. And literally the next Monday, that was like on a mm. Saturday, down comes this script uh, about the Who concert. Now, the problem with that is that the networks uh, were concerned, as they should be, um, and everyone was concerned. But he stuck to it, and um, we had to literally, they didn't want us to do the story. They gave him a hard time. Uh, it was a very frustrating week for all of us. But the show was done. But they wouldn't allow it to air until the city council of Cincinnati viewed the episode. They would have to view the episode, and if they said no, that episode was not going to air. But they said yes, air the episode. Uh, it was that kind of, there were many shows that we did like that that was really against the protocol of the network. And uh, it caused Hugh a lot of uh, angst, I'm sure. But those are the kind of things that kept us so involved in the show and the stories and the writing. And uh, I thank him for that. So there you go. Yeah, it's funny that he mentions that because I wanted to mention, a, you know, I mentioned this episode of an explosive affair, which I'll talk about uh, during the music section of my eval. Um, but there is a moment in that show where there's an explosion in the tower and you actually think that Johnny and Venus are dead for like five minutes. And it's like a sitcom. But it's yeah. like, yeah. And then, of course, they end up being alive. But but it's like it's pretty crazy. They would do that serious shit in the middle of sitcom. Uh, just a few more issues episodes. Dear Liar. This was a later episode where Bailey uh, tries to write a journalistic story about this children's clinic. And she ends up making up this encounter with a young boy. This was based on a real incident. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winner jo uh, Janet Cook won this award for an article that was fabricated. Um, and it was a scandal at the time. So they kind of ripped that right from the headlines. Uh, racism. The show deals with racism on several different levels. Uh, most probably most famously in the episode of Family Affair. Obviously, we heard some of uh, Herb's kind of accidental racism a little bit in the real families. And then you have this episode where Vina states Andy's sister. And at first, Andy is kind of upset. He wants her to date Johnny. And it's kind of like they confront that racism there. That was actually written by uh, Tim Reed. Um, and then you have Les Nesman making various uh, kind of gaffes, racial gaffes. One thing he does is when he first meets Venus in the pilot, and he's all, you know, Venus, he's all, I cover sports. And a lot of Negroes play professional sports. <laughs> and Venus calls him out. He's like, what? What are you talking about? It was so funny. Um, yeah. uh, there's also another Herb -ish, uh, episode that's pretty, pretty good called Out to Lunch, which deals with his alcoholism, his long martini sales lunches. He kind of has to face alcoholism and his abuse of alcohol. Um, I was going to talk about the kind of feminine side or the Jennifer and Bailey thing. I'll leave that to Yuri Val. I'll chime in when you have to talk about that. Now, as far as the music, no, the music is a very positive thing for the show in its correct form form. So if you're watching the show in its correct form, the use of music is amazing. I'd say one, one thing I really enjoyed watching this again for was just the backdrops, all the posters. You know, I remember one episode, they must've got some free swag from ELO's uh, 
you know, out of the blue album because I have this album. It's got all the, the posters from that album. They even have the gatefold on the wall. It's ELO everything. And then it switches. They have the clash. They have the pretenders. They've got quarter flash in one episode, right? They've got all this stuff. I remember being excited to try to see what the records were they were playing. And I remember seeing uh shiny beast bat chain puller by captain Beefheart, which is a crazy record to play on a mainstream radio station. Yeah. But Johnny fever played whatever he wanted. Right. We'll talk yeah. about that in a bit. Um, and I think the show was really smart at dealing with that, you know, that those those issues. Right. Um, I think uh, the, the episode, the consultant, they deal with a guy coming in who wants to change the format of the station and not let the DJs play what they want, but use a canned service to program the station and play the same 10 or 20 songs over again, which is how radio fucking is now. Yeah. Um, even satellite radio, you listen to Ozzy's Boneyard, they play the same fucking shit all the time for metal. You know, there's so much great stuff they could play. But that's kind of where radio was going. And this show addressed those issues as they were happening. And um, it was just really cool to see the background. I almost reminded me of the bl great blog we talked about, the notorious obsessive compulsive blog that someone created for Three's Company where they identified all the backdrop paintings and set. You could really do that with this show even more because there's so much poster artwork. There's so much little, there's records. There's so much stuff. There's to Spotify make it. playlists with everything they ever played on the show. And it's right. Some guy, yeah. some people went through and listened yeah. to every song and, and clipped it. Right. And every, they, they uh, kind of noted it. So that's the kind of obsession the show can give just by doing that. Um, I also like some of the commentary. Like one of my favorite things happens really early in the series. This is Johnny just asks Bailey what, what she thinks of Ted Nugent. And I want to play this quote. I love this. Yeah, let me ask you something. Uh, what do you think of Ted Nugent? Nugent. I think his music is loud and repetitive. And I think his stage manner is pretentious, rude, and obnoxious. Fair enough. <laughs> and Johnny throws the record. He throws yeah. the record. It's just a random moment in the show. But I just like the insight into that. Um, yeah. I also remember watching an episode where Fever, Johnny Fever plays The Weight by The Pretenders from The Pretenders debut album, but it's not the album. He's holding like what looks like a 10 inch. Yeah. But I think it's actually a single of Stop Your Sobbing because I tried to look for this EP. The only EP of Pretenders is actually uh, Extended Play, which came out after the first album. That's the album that has Message of Love and Cuban Slide and all that stuff and the live Precious version. But that came out after the debut. This was before the debut. Yeah. So this is like 79. He's like playing The Pretenders. Um, Which would, and, of course, go on that album to be one of the greatest in rock history, right? Yeah, it's like a yeah. classic, right? But yeah. they had the taste to play that. That's they right. also, one of the things they did was then on a particular episode, I don't remember which one, they played Heart of Glass by Blondie, and it actually helped the song get popular. Yeah. And because Blondie was kind of on the edge, even though that's a poppy disco song, you know, we talked about disco adjacent, that's fully disco adjacent. Um, it's very catchy, and it would eventually be number one. Chrysalis actually sent the uh, Hugh Wilson a gold record to thank him for helping promote the song. So essentially, WKRP, you know, these these stations were they weren't paying high licensing fees because of the video, but they were also actually promoting this stuff, right? Yep. They were like a real radio station, kind of like MTV would be in a way. And I'll so talk it was about really that cool. in my eval too. Yep. yep. Right, and and the musical taste in general is pretty damn good. Like they know what they're. I mean, I like that Johnny plays oldies. Cause like an old crusty sixties guy like him would do that would throw in like Ray Charles and oldies and stuff like that. And so I really like that. The other use of music is they, they sometimes would throw in um, and I'll talk about this in the bad side too, with Les Nessman, another use of foreigner. Um, but this one uh, thing struck me at the explosive affair 
is a two-part episode and it ends the first part ends on a cliffhanger with Johnny and Venus possibly, you know, sitting next to a ticking time bomb that's in a toolbox that they've been trying to open. And um, um the the song that's playing that they're playing is urgent by foreigner. So it's yeah. like urgent, urgent, and it's with a bomb. So it kind of went, it was kind of cool. All right. So, so again, and I mentioned the end theme of the show is one of the greatest end themes, greatest theme shows, songs, theme songs for a TV show. All right. So the bad stuff, right? So again, even though the show was really good when it dealt with radio subject matter, when it didn't, they often would result to these tropes. There's um, an episode where Herb and uh, Jennifer get stuck in an elevator together. This is the classic cheap kind of one set shut in episode that we talked about on the Happy Days episode. There's Mama's Review, which is a clip episode, which was only which was broadcast in the first season. And that may have been after the hiatus now that I think about it. But it was a clip show, which is just uh, there's an episode where a woman leaves a baby with Johnny. And he has to take care of the baby. I mean, that's just like so cliche. There's Bah Humbug, which I mentioned is well done, but it's kind of a, a uh, you know lazy effort to use uh, the Christmas Carol as a Christmas episode. Daydreams, again, fantasy episodes. Although there is one joke in that episode that's hilarious where Jennifer's fantasy is she's dreaming she's talking to Cary Grant, right? The classic older debonair man that she likes. And all of a sudden she's awoken by Les in the fantasy saying, will you rub me with something sticky or something like that? It's so great. It's like the one moment of the, of the episode. That's good. Um, and then there's just the episodes that are just bad. Like there's an episode called bad risk where Herb is just trying to sell life insurance. Uh, life insur- yeah, yeah. Life insurance on the side. It's just kind of a lazy episode to me. Baseball, which has its moments, which is just a baseball game, but it's so cliche. Like they, they put Jennifer next to the pitcher and all the batters stop missing. Cause she's so hot. She distracts yeah. them. I mean, it's just like the lowest form of comedy. Um, for love or money is like a two-part episode where Johnny's ex come back, come comes back and he's pretending to be rich, staying in Jennifer's apartment in a backfire. She wants his money now. And it's just unbearable. Like to me, it's just a really boring, there's like Jennifer's alone on Christmas episode, you know, Jennifer gets a boyfriend who's a maintenance man and wants her money. It's just shit, right? There's a lot of garbage. Um, I think maybe it was limited by the concept, um, just the fact that it was radio they had to come up with all these different radio shows and they did a pretty good job of it but there's a lot of filler around there and there's some other good ones too that don't have to do with radio that are just funny like i think real families is an example of what they could have done more um but there is some weaknesses there uh yeah and the new wkrp i think it proves they probably had nothing left right because that show is it seems to be bereft of ideas and it just doesn't really land like the original so maybe it was run its course but still four relatively good years um now the problem the other bad thing i'll wrap up with here is that streaming really kills the show and the fact is is it going to stand the test of time if the only form you're going to be able to stream it in is the syndicated form that's been cut up with uh impersonating actors and bad uh music one scene especially is an episode called The Date with Jennifer where Les goes, asks Jennifer out. He's, he's receiving like the Silver Sow Award or one of these awards. And he asks her out on a date. She says, yes. And he gets this uh, really funny wig from this like kind of wig company that's their sponsor. And he has this crazy suit. And he um, is dressing up to the sound of foreigners hot-blooded. They just play hot-blooded in the background. And it's really funny. Well, on the 
on the replacement iTunes version, it's just some generic, like, I'm gonna look so good or whatever, just some <laughs> generic fucking stock Jeez. music. And it's just terrible. It does, it takes away hot blooded with Les Nessman together is hilarious. And this other thing, you're just kind of like wishing it was something real, like hot blooded. So it was, um, it was bad. So I think the copyright laws and and the and the music licensing laws look i get it you made your music people are using it you should make money off of it and with streaming artists are getting ripped off left and right but at the same time it's like could we negotiate with just wkrp in good faith you know dave grohl and quest love can you please use your powers that you seem to have <laughs> for everything don't forget sebastian bach too he's in everything oh, yeah. now too oh yeah they always ask him yeah he's in the do i finally yeah. watched the do documentary yeah. too we can talk about that later i really enjoyed it but he's in there yeah um but yeah you get those guys just team up together and just just for posterity just fix these episodes and get us the shout factory on streaming because then i'd be completely long on the show if, if we get the original format of the show, even with its flaws, I'm completely long, but I'm divided because uh, even though, you know, there's some classic episodes that stand the test of time, the use of music is integral to the show's uh, integrity, right? It's, it's, it's an element that has to be there. Um, I love the Cincinnati-ness. I didn't even talk about the fact that they got Sparky Anderson, legendary Reds coach, to like be a guest on an episode about you know a sports show. I mean, that's really cool, right? I mean, they did stuff like that that really makes it kind of a time capsule of the times and a place and time. But the fact is, watching this without the original music and with those overdubs, it's unwatchable. It's a zero. You can't, even though there's good moments in between, I just think it loses the, that specialness it had. Um, so I'm sure if that's the way we're going to see it. And it's kind, kind of long and short divided because I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. It seems unlikely they would be able to license it for streaming because it's just going to cost too much money. So, I mean, that's kind of the tragedy here for me. That's where I'll leave it. All right. So... I'm going to kick off by talking about some of the shows that I think are hilarious and maybe they're not as popular. Certainly the Turkey drop one is, is the most famous one, but there's a couple of others that I think are sort of funny. Uh, one is where Carlson runs for uh, city council uh, that aired first in November, 1979. The, the, and the plot is essentially um, that uh, there's this guy, Carlson's going to run the station, People want to encourage him to do it because he's going to be gone a lot, and they don't want. Him oh around. yeah, he won't inter, inter, He won't meddle. Right? He won't meddle. You know, he'll be gone a couple of days a week on the city council. But anyway, he's going to run uh, for city council. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But here's this campaign uh, spot. It's in the hand. Listen up, guys. New uh, campaign commercial. Whoa. A long time ago. In a city far, far away, Arthur Carlson was born. Arthur Carlson, man of destiny. In the decade ahead, America will be in space. Arthur Carlson is already there. Astronaut Neil Armstrong had this to say about Arthur Carlson's bid for city council. That's one small step for man. It was the candidate himself who summed it up best when he said, Hi, I'm Arthur Carlson. So vote for Arthur Carlson for city council. This announcement paid for by the committee to elect Carlson. Herbert R. Tarlick, chairman. 
I like it. I love it. Herb loves it because he's named in the in the uh, spot as the campaign manager. the The whole idea of this one was uh, essentially the guy who's the incumbent and out in front in the polls is a drunk who doesn't show up uh, to to work very often. And when he does, he's often often drunk. Bailey digs this up with her journalistic uh, skills, and they decide not to use it. The whole show's about a debate about they shouldn't use this dirty information and things like that, which they wind up doing, um, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, the the debate is on TV, and the funny thing about it, it's a visual gag, but the funny thing about it was that um, they uh, really are parodying, in a way, the famous Nixon-Kennedy TV debates um, you know, from the early uh, 60s, where Nixon shows up on TV with Five O'Clock Shadow and doesn't really um, know what to do on TV and, and things like that. And so um, they're trying to coach Carlson on what to do for this TV debate for city council, and this is less... Uh, doing that. Oh, before you do that, I just want to mention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before you do that, I just want to mention a few things. One is I didn't have time to catch this one and I'm kind of bummed because it sounds great. And I also wonder if the Fox version, the syndicated version removes or changes this part because of the Star Wars music, Probably. because of George Lucas's, you know, he was very protective of his property. And so I wondered if they had to change that, but it, it's a bummer. I missed this because this sounds like an amazing, another amazing episode um, and another in its favor, but go on. You should uh, see it because there's a lot of visual gags, which I'll get into, but here cool. is uh, last coaching Carlson. Herb, ask me this question. Surely. Miss Candidate, what is your energy program? <laughs> right now, I'm devoting a great deal of time and study to that problem. And I expect to issue a position paper on that. <laughs> a position that is at once simple, yet complex. <laughs> Flexible, and above all else, fair to every American. <laughs> That's terrific. So, again, parroting politicians saying a lot of words and while saying absolutely nothing, um, you know, not a new parody, but, you know, funny on, on the show. And then lastly, um, the idea that, you know, Carlson was like, no, no, I, you need makeup. You need to know how to look at the camera. Carlson's like, no, I don't need any of that stuff. And they're like, no, 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 you do. Because remember what happened to Nixon. And here, here's a little clip about that. Let's, uh, let's talk about the debate. Oh, right, yeah. As a professional journalist, I know all the do's and don'ts of debating. Most important thing is always look directly at the camera. The camera is the voter. Always keep your eyes focused directly on it. Never take your eyes off of it. I wonder if he drinks on the job. You know, I wonder about that myself. Oh, it doesn't matter. Now, what about makeup? No makeup. No makeup's important, big guy. Huh? Mm. That's right. Remember what happened to Nixon. Now, the, the audio is all fucked up because uh, I got it off one of those clips where they vary the speed. Oh, yeah, yeah. To, 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 to uh, hide it, from the algorithm. To hide from the algorithm. So I, I wanted to show that because it's kind of funny. But but anyway, the, the reason I, I wanted to play this and you should watch the, the episode is because they put makeup on them, but they do it themselves. And Carlson looks like an Oompa Loompa. He's all orange and he looks ridiculous, uh, but he has a ton of makeup on and it's actually uh, pretty funny. The episode winds up where Carlson, this uh, drunk councilman, winds up making fun of WKRP and Carlson. Carlson blurts out that he's a drunk, but then feels bad about it and then throws the election, um, you know, because he can't win it, you know, having exposed dirty laundry about a drunk uh, councilman. So you get the idea, but that's a pretty funny one. 
that made me laugh when I was a kid because he was all orange and it was still funny to me uh, when I rewatched it. Okay, I got to watch that. That yeah. sounds great. Because I have one. the DVDs for a little while longer. So yeah, check I'll that one out it, for yeah. sure. Um, there's another one that I like called the music contest. Nobody could win where the plot is, um, there's a $50, uh, contest. You can win $50 and Johnny uh, fucks up and says it's $5,000 and to get out of trouble for, you know, having a $5,000 contest for Cincinnati, WKRP, they don't have that kind of money. They come up with this brilliant idea is they're going to make a contest, uh, a song recognition contest that nobody could possibly win. And then they'll get out of it. They'll say, hey, nobody won this and nobody won the money. And then they can uh, move on. So here's a little clip of that. Started this contest. And it looks like we're going to be calling Mr. Donald Pasola of Mount Auburn. I sure hope he's home. <laughs> what is it? Uh, hello there. Is this Donald Pasola? Uh, m- m- Mr. Pozzola, are you all right? Yeah, I'm okay. Great. What is it? Uh, well, this is Dr. Johnny Fever from WKRP, and your name has been drawn from our lucky postcard, Ben. You've got a shot at winning $5,000. Are you ready to play? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> okay, Mr. Pozzola, for $5,000, name these six songs. <laughs> Okay, Don, how about it? Are you ready to name those songs? <laughs> Too wild to tape, the boys. Uh-huh. Double of dice, rolling stones. Mm-hmm. YMCA, village people. Uh-huh. Douglas Shade, Wayne Dude. Uh-huh. Straight on, my heart. Uh-huh. National Anthem by Francis Scott Key. <laughs> Mr. Pasola, you just won $5,000. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. $5,000. I tell you what, we're going to put Mr. Pasola on hold here, but you know, there's no holding back when it comes to Eric Clapton. All right, before you say anything, I watched this episode on the streaming version. I have not watched it on the DVDs. And the contest, all the songs are made up names and they're different clips. And there's so actually, they don't say, they they, don't say actually, heart. Yeah. There, but, but, but not only that, there's actually two filmed versions of this episode. Did you know that? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, there's three because this part for the syndicated version was all redone. Yes. Redone. So it's crazy to watch that because it didn't it it kind of was transparent. I'm like, oh, they just made up names. So I haven't actually watched this one in its original form because I watched it before I got the library DVD. So it was like all made up. Anyway, go on. uh, Two versions of the show. There are two versions of this show. So the the idea is Johnny now is in trouble. He has to pay five thousand dollars. They have to the station has to pay five thousand dollars. It's supposed to be 50. Well, what happens is that, um, you know, Herb. So Mr. Carlson's furious. He wants to fire Johnny. He wants to fire Andy. He wants to fire everybody. They don't have $5,000. They're freaking out. He has to go to his mother and ask for money. Like, it's all gone to shit. And what happens is, is he basically puts Herb and Les in charge, their dream, you know, while Andy and 
Johnny are on the hot seat. And a scammer shows up in the studio saying that he's Mr. Pasola and he wants his $5,000 and he's showing up early. The real guy played by Mr. Vargas from. Yeah. Played uh, by Mr. Vargas is the con guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I noticed that I'm like, that's our old friend from fast times. Yeah. So the con artist shows up saying, I want my $5,000. Of course, they pay him in cash, which is just bizarre and wouldn't happen yeah. in a briefcase. And they don't verify his They don't verify his name. Like, give me your license. Let yeah, give me your that. license. They don't do anything like that. They have some photographers there that Wes and, and Herb are, you know, kind of, uh, you know, running there. The guy takes off with the $5,000. Um, and then the real Mr. Pasola shows up. Now, there are two versions of this. The original version has the con man going away with $5,000. And the real Mr. Pasola is showing up saying, where's my money? And then they have to pay him another $5,000. And that WKRP's out $10,000. And the, the show ends with Johnny begging for money, having come up with some like, you know, pay Mr. Carlson back scheme where he's paying like $10 a, a week or some, you know, shit like that. And Johnny's on the air begging for donations, saying that the new contest, the, the winner's going to win like a thing of uh, lip gloss. And, <laughs> and it's this whole thing. But apparently the network was like, absolutely not. There has to be consequences for bad people doing bad things. And so they reshot it where um, this, the con man shows up, gets the $5,000 in cash from Les and Herb. And Johnny's like, well, let me walk you out, you know, sort of thing. And he walks out and then he comes back later with the briefcase saying, well, that guy didn't know anything about music. That was a con man. And Johnny had saved the day because he got the $5,000 back, um, you know, and uh, apparently everything he actually was cool. says that guy knows less. He, 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 he that guy knows uh, less music than you uh, about music than you do less or something. Right. Something right? like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Now, the thing is, is they still have to pay the real Mr. Pasola $5,000. So it doesn't really solve anything. But the network was like, no, no, we're not going to have you know, a bad guy getting away with it, just like network TV justice in those days, teens couldn't have sex without negative consequences or anything there. So anyway, um, that was that one. It was pretty funny. I just like the, the, the nature of that, like the goofy radio contests that these radio stations would do were ridiculous, but all those, like, can you recognize the song ones? I always liked because I could usually do a pretty good uh, job. That's the one where they talk about Captain Beefheart. Um, with the shiny beast uh, bat chain puller uh, as well, um, not fast and bulbous, which is Trout Mask uh, replica, which is his more famous album, right? Yeah. Um, so I, the funny thing is, I saw this episode before I got the DVDs, as I mentioned, and so I just saw the album. I didn't know he mentioned the song and played it because, of course, he doesn't because they had to overdub that because they couldn't get the rights. Yeah. So when Shout Factory you could probably easily get the rights to this, and you know it's not a hard one to get. Yeah. Um, so you saw the original version. So I think I need to watch this one again too because I haven't really. I don't really feel like I've seen it. Yeah. You know, even though I saw most of the plot, I didn't really get it. You know, it's you weren't um, getting the real deal, and no. people thought that Johnny was making up the name of the album because it sounds so ridiculous. But yeah, uh, you know, Don, that's a real real Don thing. Van Vliet, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. You know. Uh, interesting, interesting character for another time. Anyway, moving on. The last uh, episode I want to mention is one about Paola. Um, and this is one where it's a part of a two-parter episode where Johnny gets a job in LA again for a lot of money, gets fired and comes back. And in the uh, interim, uh, they hired another uh, DJ to fill in for uh, Johnny's uh, spot. And this guy is kind of a slick uh, radio type of guy. 
Um, he's, a, you know, kind of a, a rock and roll uh, DJ uh, from a big market sort of deal. He's taking uh, Johnny's place on the radio. And it turns out that he was on the take. Now, there, um, what does that mean? What does Paola mean for people who, you know, aren't realizing or didn't know about it at the time or aren't aware of it? But uh, Paola uh, was, you know, part of a larger music industry corruption uh, scandal. Um, it still happens today, uh, by the way. It's just uh, now been legalized and whitewashed under like marketing, uh, you know, monikers and things like that. But at the time, a lot of radio stations um, were had DJs who were getting paid off in money, drugs, women, um, cars, uh, to pay uh, to play a certain uh, songs. And so, as the radio industry in the um, '60s uh, and into the '70s started becoming big business, was becoming a bigger and bigger uh, problem. And in the '70s, it really became uh, you know a big deal where you know these DJs were getting backstage passes again, drugs, women cocaine in this episode. Um, and it was, uh, there was actually a RICO, the RICO Act was passed to target this um, and similar payola scandals. Now I want to, I want to talk about one thing before I get into the episode is one of the big, biggest, dirtiest players in payola um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was a guy you may have heard of named Dick Clark, who was a DJ and had, wow. um, you know, a lot of, he was a famous DJ, had uh, radio station things and all that stuff. He was dirty as hell, but got away with all of it because he had this clean cut image and paid off the right people. If you if you do the research on this, you can find out he got away scot-free, as opposed to another very famous DJ who was totally guilty in, uh, of Paola, but was open about it. Eventually, it was Alan Freed, who was a famous DJ in the history of rock and roll. He was essentially blacklisted, um, you know, and his career was ruined uh, from it. Dick Clark did all the same stuff, got away mm -hmm. with it. Uh, Again, you can go do this research and you find out all that. But anyway, yeah, I didn't know any of that. And the funny thing is, so now I have another reason to hate Dick Clark. Yeah. Not only is he the wor world's worst interviewer, as we talked about on the Pat Benatar episode, in which we will talk about again, since I'm sure we'll have clips of him. Uh, I didn't know he was actually dirty yeah. underneath the hood. He he totally was. So Oh, uh, that's crazy. Uh, now, there's some alleged stuff in there. You know, I wasn't there. But go and do the research uh, about the Paolo scandals. And Dick Clark was definitely investigated. And you can find out how he was sort of cleared. But basically, he really wasn't. He was just sort of like, he just got away with it. So anyway, um, there was this DJ at WKRP who was uh, taking uh, money and drugs, including cocaine, uh, to play songs on the radio. and they got got found out. The guy got fired. Um, and the cocaine that was floating around the station, they were treating it kind of like on the Three's Company episode um, where the marijuana plant, where they didn't know what it was, they didn't know what to do with it and all that, which is complete nonsense because uh, Travis, Randy Travis, not Randy Travis, Andy Travis, Randy Travis too, but Andy Travis, definitely a coke guy. You can just tell. And they had been doing some of that coke, but they're pretending that it was like, you know, um, you know, nuclear waste. Um, didn't know what to do with it. And and uh, uh, Carlson comes in and sees Johnny with the cocaine that he confiscated from this, uh, you know, dirty uh, DJ. And he tells uh, Carlson that it's foot powder. So Carlson takes it and he's like, oh, yeah, I, I could use that. And I just wanted to, to play a little bit of that. Where's the coke? I don't know. I guess Carlson puts it on his feet. <laughs> Good heavens, 
I've lost all the feeling in the left foot. Oh. <laughs> but you're gonna be all right. For the love of Pete, Andy, I'm hooked. No, you're not hooked. <laughs> I got a monkey on my foot. <laughs> Instead of a monkey on his back, he has a monkey on his foot. That's how edgy it yeah. is. That's kind of edgy. And and what's funny is I love the theme of Carlson unwittingly getting drugged. Like he takes yeah. the he does the cocaine on his foot. In that other episode I mentioned, he eats the pot brownies without realizing they're pot brownies. Yeah, um, really yep, funny. Yep, yep. By the way, on Dick Clark, uh, Lindsey Buckingham got even with Dick Clark uh, for all these guys by puking. Uh, as we talked about in the in the room. Oh, that's episode, right. That's all right. Over his uh, office. So good on you, Lindsay, for that. Um, anyway, there's some other shows I, I I won't get into. There's some funny ones. There's more parodies. The Mr. Macho Wig uh, parody. Uh, you know where? That's Les... the one you I was talking about with Les, and, yeah. and that's he's playing the Mr. Macho, putting the Mr. Macho wig on when he's listening to Hot Blooded, and there's yeah. a commercial. Well, let me play that because it's pretty funny. Yeah, men. Ever stop to think what's wrong with you dining alone? No beautiful girls in your life. Always the insipid jerk who makes other people want to throw up the moment you enter a room. Well, relax. Nine out of ten times, the problem is simply loss of hair. And Mr. Macho has the answer. Natural-looking hair pieces that feel as good as they look in the wind. In the jungle, <laughs> in the shower, <laughs> when you're with that very special girl, <laughs> only you and Mr. Macho will know your secret. So in Cincinnati, dial 555-MCHO. That's 555-MACHO. There you go. Uh, so, all right, moving on. There's other funny episodes. There's one where Johnny's trying to get out of a condo contract and him and uh, Venus are pretending to be uh, gay lovers, which is a little amusing. Um, they don't really go too over the top uh, with it, but it, it's somewhat amusing. Um, to me, you talked about music. This was one of the reasons why I liked the show so much back in the day, because this show, when it was on and when I was watching it, really paralleled um, not only the music I was into, but the importance of it. And I really liked seeing the bands that I was hearing about and the great music that was coming out. I could see it on the air when it was happening, as it was happening. That was really uh, compelling to me. And this time of, you know, our rock history, it seemed like every week another great album was coming out. It was very exciting. Now, it turns out it was true. Uh, as we talked about in the Billy Joel episode, that this time frame in rock history was especially great. And there was so many things coming out. It did not continue um, with the same uh, frequency, but it was so important to me because when, when I would see um, these albums and hear these bands, I was like, I love them or I'd never heard of them and I'm going to go get into that. That kind of thing was really super important to me. Um, the um, We mentioned that there's people who obsessively catalog all the music played in the show and those are available. We'll link to some of those online. Obviously, we're not the only ones who uh, think that. There was one clip, though, that I wanted to play about music and it had to do with one of my favorite bands and could be what I think is my favorite album from this band. And I'm just going to play it and then talk about it. I 
touch that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was... Uh, uh, Gripping music, huh? Yeah, that's, that's good, all right. What's the name of that orchestra? Pink Floyd. Who was that Pink Floyd? <laughs> do I hear dogs barking on that thing? I do. Good, aren't they? <laughs> hey, here's a thing called Pigs on the Wing. <laughs> what does that sound like? I don't do requests. <laughs> well, just keep up the good work. Giving it all I got. So I see. So uh, in that scene, Johnny's sitting there with his head back, his sunglasses on. He looks completely out of it. Carlson comes in. He's trying to figure out what's going on. Can't figure out the music. The dog is barking. He got the rest of it. But uh, I wonder if that whole thing is gone in the re- Yeah. Uh, what what episode was that in? Do you remember? Yeah. This is in, um, let's see. Uh, I, I'll find it. I'll, we'll link to it. I, I yeah, because yeah. I did not watch this. And if I did, I may have missed it. I don't know how they would replace it. They would just have to cut this out. Yeah, they just cut Maybe that this, scene this out. Maybe this is the five minutes, because we mentioned the difference in syndication length and the actual original links of the show. Original link was 25 minutes. Syndicated link was 21. They probably just cut this scene entirely. Yeah. And it's really funny. It's it a is. funny scene where he's you know, obviously listening to it on audio. I watched it, but he's obviously confused by the sounds of the dogs. He doesn't understand and, what's going yeah, on. He's yeah, like, what is this shit we're playing on this radio station? And like? this joke is specifically about the song. So you would lose that. Yeah. And it's it's a great choice. It's such an FM classic. You know, it's a yeah. really long song and it's like a great song. And, and then there's more talk about the album itself, which you would also miss. That's like right. pigs on the wing, he's actually talking about another track on animals. So it's it's really wow. That's an example of how streaming just fucking annihilates the show. Yeah, and, like, and unless to they me, change it back. Yeah. When I was a kid and I saw that scene, I was into Pink Floyd. Um, I was not into animals. Like my love of animals came later. Yeah. Um, but and but I just remember seeing that and go, wow, this is so cool. I love Pink Floyd. They're talking about Pink Floyd like it was on a network show. It was just so important to me that what was becoming my obsession in life, you know, all this music was being reflected in this show that was on network TV. It was just kind of like a you know, little bit of an echo chamber that that just was very uh, impressionable or made an impression on me as an impressionable uh, kid, you know, at that at that time. The other thing about the WKRP, really, if you mention all of the posters and uh, album covers and stuff like that, the stuff you saw in the background was just a mashup of every last little genre. There was hard rock, there was country, there was metal. Leo Sayer was on there, that that terrible album when he's like doing the splits. Flying, yeah, he's yeah, like flying in the air. Yeah, that, you like make that me feel like dancing. Yeah, that shit. Um, that, yeah. that was on there. Like, they wouldn't play that shit. You know what I mean? If they're playing animals. So... And anyway, they would just get whatever dump of stuff from a record company, probably. Right. And the thing that's funny is some episodes, like the bullpen, some episodes the bullpen's covered in posters, other episodes, there's nothing there. And yep. even in the DJ booth, sometimes the, the poster you see the map of Cincinnati they had, uh, you know, and then it would have posters tacked all over. And some episodes, there were they posters would change or they would disappear entirely. It was really interesting, yeah. Yeah, but there was, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. There's Kiss, you mentioned in the in the pilot. I don't think they ever played that on the air. Um, that kind of thing. So, but anyway, the, the whole idea that it was this cutting edge music they're talking about or things I was into, it's just super important to me. All right, moving on. Um, 
I want to do a quick callback to uh, something that we talked about in our AM Gold episode, which probably is maybe the worst song ever recorded, um, even worse than Captain and Tennille, if that's possible, even worse than Helen Reddy, if that is possible. And it is making fun of this. I just want to uh, play this real quick here. And now it's time to listen to one of my personal favorites. It's the Hallelujah Tabernacle Choir with their beautiful rendition of You're Having My Baby. All right, so that's the that's the form before the format change. That's, that's the last the thing Johnny changed. plays before the format change. So that's the beautiful music. And when I heard that, I was like, "Oh yeah, we got it. We got to include this because this was on Jeff's shortlist." Um, yes. For those of you who haven't heard AM Gold, please go listen to it. But we talk about the long and the short of AM Gold classics, and obviously Paul Anka's "You're Having My Baby" is one of those. And this is like a even crazier rendition of that. It's yeah. amazing. It's such great satire. It of, is of that kind of music. It is. It is. All right. Uh, before I give my final evaluation, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the characters. Uh, we talked about Johnny Fever and, you know, his, that's a classic character that Howard Hessman brought to life there. Um, I really just love this character. Every time I see him, uh, it just makes me laugh. And again, Howard Hessman gets all the credit for bringing this guy to life. Um he has a lot of funny lines about drugs. You know, obviously he's a bit of a burnout and stuff like that. And um, there's a famous episode too. We didn't really talk about where this guy is selling diet pills, the uppers, uh, you know, the whole station comes down on him. Uh, some big advertiser that Herb's all excited about and saying, no, you can't sell these pills or, you know, uh, uppers and fever has a note saying that uh, since the Republicans took office, everyone just took downers, <laughs> you know, the little political jokes, things like that. Um, Les Nessman, of course, uh, you mentioned some of the great things uh, Les did. I, I want to play, I can't, we can't do this episode without playing this. Oh, yeah. And right now, it's time for Mr. Les Nessman with a whole mess of news. WKR. Morning, Les. Morning, Johnny. Cincinnati. It's all yours. London, Madrid, Bangkok, Cincinnati, one of the corners of the world. From the news capitals at home and abroad, the day's headlines brought into focus. The issues and events that shape our time. WKRP, information beacon of the Ohio Valley presents Les Nessman and the News. And up to the minute commentary from one of journalism's most trusted voices, five-time winner of the Buckeye News Hawk Award. Is that new? I just had it made. Very nice. I like it. Now here's Les Nessman and the News. Good morning. This is Les Nessman reporting. In the top story of the day, General Wallace Nassami, head of the emerging nation of Nibia, denied his new government was a dictatorship and promised free elections as soon as each citizen of the small country learned to play a musical instrument. <laughs> Nassami said this was part of a new cultural program. Turning to sports... <laughs> winner of this week's Gulf Coast Golf Classic was Chai Chai Rodriguez. <laughs> Chai Chai finished with a nine under par score. 
it's Chichi Rodriguez. <laughs> Hopefully, Mr. Rodriguez will play up to the next competition. So, it's still funny. Soybean sagged while corn popped to an all-time high. So the, the, here, here's the fun, two thing, funny things about it is obviously mispronouncing the name. Johnny corrects him, goes back to that. But yeah. he also doesn't understand golf because he's saying he's under par. And he, so he says, next time, hopefully he can play up to par. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. Yeah there's, yeah, there's a lot made of his, like, not understanding how sports works in right. various episodes. But this is one of the all-time greatest quotes. And the mispronunciation is great. And I also love the intro he creates for himself that keeps going on and on. And it's, yeah. like, so dramatic. It's so funny. He also um, wants, desperately wants to be considered, you know, a preeminent uh, newsman of Cincinnati and wants a traffic copter, which Andy promises him at, promises him at some point, never delivers. Uh, Andy basically says, yeah, I was lying, Les, but Les still wants that copter. So in later episodes would beat his chest to make it sound like yeah, he's actually so funny. in a helicopter uh, delivering his uh, traffic uh, re- reports. Um, the thing about Les that I always liked and uh, definitely a highlight of the show, the character was was awesome. But he was um, Richard Sanders creating it. The character really accurately represented the undercurrent really of middle America, who honestly never really came to grips with the 60s and 70s that were, um, you know, unfolding right in front of him in the characters of Venus and, right. and Johnny and others. Um, and this is a, a rural culture, too, in Cincinnati, and he perfectly captured it. Um Herb, we talked about his, his wardrobe. I, I want to play um, Hugh Wilson briefly talking about Herb's suits and where he got the idea. I think I got the idea for his outfits uh, getting delayed at the Atlanta airport in 1978. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. people in the South actually dress like this, uh, you know, maybe in the, in the 70s. Uh, yeah. Kind of funny. Um, the Herb character was just really the perfect uh, sales guy. Uh, I appreciate the character more. Uh, I always liked Herb when I rewatching it. He became kind of my hero, um, mostly because of Frank Bonner and just the understated nature of the character. I always go for like the 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 understated subtle humor, um, especially right. the characters in the background who are doing funny things. And and Herb did that all over the place. Um, the cynicism of the sales uh, character was just he nailed it perfectly. And sales dummies today are no different. They're just, they're the same. Um, I want to just play a little clip of Herb talking about uh, solar energy, which I thought was funny. But would you consider signing one of our petitions? Absolutely not. Herbert R. Tarling doesn't sign anything. (laughs) Besides, I read somewhere that solar energy is dangerous. It leaks or something. Yeah, it leaks. (laughs) So so anyway, there you go. I'm now going to talk about some characters that maybe I didn't like as much in the in in this watching and for my final evaluation. Um, Bailey, I think um, she's fine and the actress is fine. We talked about some of the good things about it, but I thought it was really kind of just the whole trope about taking a pretty woman and ugling her up uh, was a little much. Um, and there's even storylines about her having trouble getting men uh, and she's dating some alcoholic, depressed uh, student thing at one point that she didn't seem that into because she was having trouble finding a date or some ridiculous things like like that, which is just eh, whatever. Carlson, the the man baby kind of thing was funny at times, but the the dichotomy between him not even be able to take phone calls and having Jennifer tell 
people he's dead to suddenly having this moral backbone and knowing what to do in difficult situations was just a little much. Um, I, yeah, I think a, some of his stuff is pretty dated. Like there's that whole one where he's trying to blow up a raft and it blow like his raft blows up and he can't put it. It's like it, some of his bumbling stuff is so over the top. It doesn't really fit some of the rest of the show. Although I do like the cocaine foot powder thing. And I love the marijuana brownie thing. And, you know, the dog's joke was really good when they used him. Right. It was it was good. But a yeah. lot of times his stuff kind of went over the over the top in a way that was a little to not subtle, you know? Yep. Um, I like the Venus character. Um, some of the stuff that they did uh, was, I'll get into in a second, I didn't like as much, but it was an out, of, out of place at WKRP. It didn't make sense that his show would be there for like a major station or it was becoming a major station. It was more like a college station. But I liked the Venus character. I thought it was interesting. I liked the way he dressed. It was funny. And the actor, did Tim Reed, did a good job. Um you know, we had talked about Andy enough. I, I want to talk about Jennifer. I think it's the worst character on the show, ultimately. Um, you know, the Lonnie Anderson, I think, did what she could with, with the character. But essentially, she was a prostitute. Um, that, you know, well, she's really like a, she's kind of a spin on the whole gold digger thing because she's always dating these older rich men. And she makes a joke that's pretty funny where she says, you know, they tire easily. Like, they, it, it's kind of funny. But at the same time, it's weird that they have her, you know, dating like the colonel or whoever she's yeah. dating. Right. And there's that whole episode where she's seen as a gold digger, but kind of turns it around and gives his money to charity. So they kind of they kind of try to have it both ways with her, I think. And well, it's it's interesting. I, I don't know. I, I think it's really dated. It didn't watching these episodes again. That definitely didn't work for me. I mean, she's dating these old men. She lives in this really expensive, you know, apartment. She has way more money than she could even making the highest salary at WKRP. And it's implied that she's getting these, this, these, this money from these men that she's, that she's, these old men that she's dating. Is that prostitution or is that gold digging? I don't know. Um, whatever it is, it's just kind of like, ugh. It's, it's interesting just- to contrast her with Bailey too, because Bailey is actually trying to do things, you know, in a business way. Like she's dressed in a business manner. Yeah. She's uh, trying to work her way up through merit. Like she tries to be a newswoman and she's actually got some talent. It turns out she tries to have a talk show that backfires because the guest is insane. Um, But she tries to do these various promotions and things. And Andy is really supportive of her working her way up. But Jennifer's already at the top from basically doing nothing. Yeah. Right. She's the highest paid. The second highest paid is Johnny. Who's like the star of the station. He's right. only number two paid, which wouldn't in real life, a, a real star DJ would be the number one paid probably person other than maybe the, maybe Andy or, or Mr. Carlson, but they make this joke over Jennifer being the highest paid. And it's kind of weird how that contrasts with the actual thing they're trying to do with Bailey, which is actually make a real kind of feminist character work her way up through merit. So I always thought that was kind of weird. You know, I didn't really know how to take it, even though they try to make, well, Jennifer's really smart and she saves the day a lot and she kind of does things to help things along, even though she's mostly doing nothing all day because she's kind of worked, you know, wormed her way into this position of making all this money. It's kind of strange. It's really weird the way they twist that around. And rewatching it, it just didn't work for me a lot. Yeah, like, I was just like, I was like, eh. I think Lonnie Anderson's really good in the role, and I think she's funny. Like she does. It's not her fault. She does 
yes, she does a good job playing what's written, but it is interesting what they try to do. I think they tried to subvert that thing, but it was not quite successful, like you say, because she's still doing all the things a gold digger would do. Yeah. You know, it, it was weird. It was weird. Anyway, here, here are some things that I think really were in the plus column to me. Um, it was a national rock radio station, WKRP, the show before MTV. I talked about that and how important that was seeing these cool bands represented, uh, you know, on TV. And it was um, cooler than MTV in a way. They played yeah. like dogs. Yeah, they played play dogs on MTV right. and they played they played like Captain Beefheart for crying out loud. That's right. Know? That's right. Um, yep. So that was really important to me. I, it, I remember that as a kid and it still resonates to this day. Um, they're playing uh, cool stuff. You mentioned the Pretenders and stuff before it was even out as awesome. It represented this culture to me that didn't exist in mainstream media. It seemed behind the scenes of this radio station to this music. Uh, that was really uh, cool. And I just remember that just having a huge impression and being nostalgic for that and watching the show, just being reminded of that. Um, it reminded me of the um, kind of constant tension between the people who loved and cared about uh, music and the big business it became. Um, so, you know, there's a clip that I, I'm not going to play here, but uh, essentially it's Jim Ladd talking about when the ratings started becoming a big deal, radio was becoming a big business and the people who really were in it because they loved music were getting pushed out and marginalized and the big business and the mergers and all that kind of took over and a lot of the people who got into it, the Johnny Fevers of the world, got into it because they loved music um, and they wanted to play good music. And Johnny is always refusing to play Andy's top 10 list or hits list because he wants to play the stuff that he liked and kind of had the power to do that. And, and Andy that, goes to bat for him eventually on the episode, The Consultant, where his old buddy is a now his old protege is now a consultant and tried yeah. to program the station that I mentioned. And he's like, this guy's playing Ray Charles. He's playing oldies. It's crusty. He's like yep. this old burnout. And Andy's like, no, I'm going to let my DJs play the music they want to, even though he's still pressuring to play the hits. You know, yeah, and he like gets all excited time. when he mistakenly right. plays a hit. Right. Um, I thought the show in subtle ways captured sort of the encroaching menace of Reaganism that was smacking the USA in the face at that time when Reagan was um, elected. Uh, that yeah, I think. Yeah. I think just real quick, I forgot to mention something during mine while well, I didn't, I kind of skipped over because we are having an epic show here, but clean up radio everywhere is an episode where there is actually a right wing preacher who tries to censor the station and he becomes friends with Carlson because Carlson's also kind of conservative and old fuddy daddy admits to the guy he doesn't like rock and roll. And he's like, well, this guy's good. He's not a censor. But then Andy comes back and says, yeah, he's trying to censor. And there's eventually a dramatic scene where they, he, he talks about how the, the, the lyrics of imagine sound like communism. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, it's kind of that exactly <laughs> dealing with that Reaganism thing. And then the down, the great downer quote you mentioned as well, which is. Yep. Really yep. Yep. There's like subtle things all over the place that always kind of made me laugh. Um, the things, you know, her, I mentioned the sales dummies, they never really changed the life insurance episode where he's trying to sell uh, life insurance to the guys is, is pretty funny. Um the, they tried to get progressive ideas into the show, playing in some gray areas in a way that not a lot of other network TV shows uh, did. And you mentioned uh, some of those I, I won't cover. Um, some of the things working against it here to me are really mo a majority of the episodes are not that great. Like I watched a lot of them going back and a lot of them are hard for me to watch. Um, outside of the ones that we're highlighting, a lot of them are just like, ugh. 
skip, 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 skip. This is dumb. This is dumb. This is dumb. A lot of the uh, plots, it, you know, from later episodes are just like, you know, uh, Herb accidentally paints a lizard, you know. A frog oh, yeah, the king. frog, the frog story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this shit like that or, you know, uh, you know, Jennifer's boyfriend, you mentioned this one. He uh, dies. Old guy dies on a date and she's now the executrice of the wheel. Well, and stuff like that. And I, I don't know. It just became like sitcom, you know, land bullshit. Um, the show looks like shit. Honestly, because yeah, it, it looks on, really bad on yeah, video. It looks tape. really bad. Um, you already talked about the licensing. That's a huge negative. I you covered it well. I won't go into that. Um, a lot of the very special episodes, rewatching them, just did not hit me well. Um, the Who one seemed very preachy, even though there's good things about it. The Who is Gordon Sims one, which you know, again, had good things about it, but just going back and watching these, it's like struck me as like super after school, especially like they just didn't resonate well now uh, to me, even as a fan uh, of the show, the sexism and, you know, uh, the lechy characters, Herb harassing Jennifer all the time. is just like, again, again, it just became so monotonous. And, and so it just doesn't play well. Um, you know, the discounting of Bailey constantly by everyone, even though she, obviously she was the only smart person there who knew what she was doing in a lot of ways even though she is inexperienced, of course she would have opportunities. Um, and she was always fighting for her chance, but you know, everyone else was around her was incompetent. She, she was competent. It was like, it's silly. That kind of got on my nerves um, at the time. And ultimately to me, wrapping up here, uh, finally, I know our listeners are like, thank you. But uh, I was trying to separate out the personal nostalgia from what future generations would find compelling about like, ultimately, that's what we're doing here, right? And what I found is so much of what was appealing to me about the show was the personal nostalgia and was the time that this uh, show took place and was the fact that they were breaking these great bands at this incredibly important time in rock history. And that was, an, you know, just so happened to coincide with my sort of coming of age to all this music and all that. Would other people have the same experience and go back and look at the show with the same eyes? I don't think the answer is yes. In fact, I think it's no. I think that future generations would go back and look at the show, especially if they're dealing with some of the licensing issues. And these characters are not going to mean that much to them in the time that the, you know, the radio idea is going to be antiquated. No one's going to know what radio is. And I don't think people are going to find this show as compelling as you or I find it because we have this strong nostalgia and personal connection to it. So if I'm evaluating it purely on, is this going to, should you go long in terms of valuation? No, I think I have to go short. I don't think future generations are going to come back to this show and really find a lot here. There might be a few things here and there, but they're not going to have the same feelings about the show that you and I have because of that uh, nostalgia. So that's kind of where I ultimately came down. Yeah, I think we're close. I think the difference is if you could have the original show in its original form, I think it's really good. And I think people would react to it. But without the music, without those references, it's at, because I think the music also plays into here is the music standing the test of time. But without those references, I don't think we're going to get it because I don't think streaming licensing is going to happen. And without streaming licensing happening of those musical references, the show is dead. Like it's just it can't rise above that. 
even the ones that don't deal with music that are funny, like real families. Yeah. I just think you need the music there. That's like that dogs thing, I think is the best clip we played. That I did not, I was not, I didn't even remember, remember that. I wasn't aware of it, but that is so into the freaking music. It's unreal. That's and, what I loved about the show. Yeah. And yeah. it's like without that, the show is not special. Right. I mean, right. It, it loses that edge that it had, even though I think there's laughs, you know, it's like, uh, but anyway, that's, I guess that's where we sit. Uh, that's where we're here. And I guess, please, the gods of licensing, just for me, from my perspective, you know, let's, let's get this out on streaming in its proper form, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I think you're right. But if yeah. you're out there listening to this in the future and you're like, what is this show these guys are going on about? Seek out the DVDs or seek it out the transfers of the DVDs. If you don't know what a DVD is, somebody will have copied them onto some dark web somewhere. You'll be able to see the originals or mostly 85% of them, or somebody will have gotten the original tapes and gotten them out onto the net somewhere. Um, take a look at those. There is some compelling stuff here, especially if you're interested in this great period in rock history. The, this late seventies, early eighties is one of the golden areas of rock uh, golden eras of rock music and this show captures that so well in a lot of ways if you are into that so all right we will wrap up here right at the two hour 45 minute mark which matches yeah, our rumors almost almost breaking record yeah and uh, our molly crew episode so uh signing off here i'm jeff that's slip all uh, right we'll play you out with this <laughs>